Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to the first part of Some Look at Scott's 2018 in review series. Today, we'll be going through our top 10 lists for movies released in these past 12 months. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and today with me, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey, as well as a very special guest and friend of the pod. Scott, would you like to introduce who we have with us today? It would be my pleasure. Um, We have here with us today, I've been pitching this a little bit, um, but we have my good friend with us here today. And when I say good friend... You know, I feel like on a lot of podcasts, whenever there's a guest, someone is like, oh, here's my good friend. And it's like someone they met 30 minutes ago. But literally, I've been friends with this guy since we were uh, babies in the nursery at church together. Yes. Infants, some would say. Like the uncredited infant in uh, Aquaman who plays... uh, who plays the infant yeah. Arthur Curry? Infant Arthur Curry. Right yeah. There. yeah, you think uh, they'd have a union or something? <laughs> <laughs> Infants it's union. Ridiculous. The guy's gonna sue ten years from now for Probably sure. Probably so. But yeah, so so when I say that this guy is my good friend, I mean it uh, because we we've known each other like our whole lives. Um, and he is the host, one of the one of the co-hosts of uh, another great movie podcast called Purely Nostalgia. I've talked about it here before. We'll get him to you know break it down for us. Uh, here in a second. Uh, but first, I want to say hello. How's it going to my good friend, Clint Page? How you doing, Clint? I'm great, Scott. How are you? Thank you for that um, historically accurate introduction. <laughs> uh, I should have said you're, you're a Clint Jazz Hands Page. I meant to introduce you. Yeah, I, I, my, I, have, I do have two middle names, yeah. uh, J and H. I will never reveal uh, to I, people. I know what they are. You, Scott knows what they are because... That's how we, good, good of friends we well, are. Well, and we were born at the same time. Yeah. So uh, we, we, you know... Same birthday? Same. No. Uh, well, maybe. <laughs> no one not, not as far as we know. No yeah. one really knows. But uh, yes, uh, thank you for having me here. How does it feel to be the first person not named Scott to ever appear on this podcast? That's not true. I have I have my friends who do the That's superhero. True, but on this podcast. Yeah, on, on some, like, some, like, on it's some Scott, like it's Scott. How does it feel to be the first? Uh, I feel inadequate. Oh, really? Okay. Just yeah. the name is what elevates us, I yeah, guess. I, yeah, and I was thinking logistically as I was driving over here, like, if I have to address you, thank God that we're in the same room, yeah. <laughs> so that I can like kick you under the table or make eye contact with you. Well, this is the this is the joke that we've always had because you know we we hung out together in high school. This being Scott and I, and we went to a camp one summer, and oh yes, people who didn't know us, I mean, would basically call us Scott and other Scott. But somehow <laughs> I got I got the shaft, and I was other Scott, and he was Scott. True. So, but now we were we were marking this earlier when you came when you were you know met Scott uh, the other Scott for the first time today. <laughs> yeah. That he's now other Scott and I'm Scott. That's so. true. In, in my sphere of influence, you are OG Scott. Yeah, there you go. So just to let Scott know how it feels, I think you should just refer to him as other, other Scott, Scott if you okay. ever want. I can do that yeah. if I have to. Um, you know, defer to him for whatever reason. Exactly. I'll refer to him as other Scott. I can do that. Yeah. So I've talked about your show, Purely Nostalgia, here before. Um, that you, you co-host with your friend. Uh, Eli Shapsmith. But for those who you know aren't familiar, maybe haven't listened to the show before, um, what exactly do y'all do on Purely Nostalgia? I mean, I'll, I'll be the first to say, when I heard about this premise, I was like, that's such a great idea. Like, I can't believe someone hasn't done this before. Um, so 
the tagline is that we look at the movies that we watch as kids with our adult eyes and we see if they were really good or if we just enjoyed them because we were dumb children. Yeah. And so it's just kind of taking a uh, more critical view of the movies and TV shows that we watched as children. And, uh, you know, nostalgia, thankfully, as long as the past exists, nostalgia will always exist as well. Yeah. So as as long as the world doesn't end, we will always have some form of content. (laughs) Exactly. And I I know that y'all have recently done a series on the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. You Mm -hmm. did the Spy Kids movie sort of to kick off your... uh, you know, your show uh, when it started earlier this year. Uh, I have to ask, can you give us any teasers for what's coming in 2019? What, where y'all might be headed next? Um, yes, I can see um, across the shoulder from other Scott, uh, there is a basketball on the floor. Oh, yes, this is the um, one that I recommended. Uh, well, a basketball on the floor, and I can also see through his window, uh, he has a dog. So, um if there's any, you know, put two and two together, basketball and dog. Again, I suggested this one, so yeah. I'm, I'm really excited. So that, that is in our future. We've actually, he and I will tell each other, like, hey, this is the movie that we want to do. Glory Road, definitely. <laughs> Glory, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's it. Yeah, exactly. Hoosiers. <laughs> yeah, uh, what's that bobsled movie? I can't oh, think. Uh, with cool John, Runnings. Cool yeah. Runnings with, with John, John Candy. John Candy, Candy. Yeah. So the only ones that I care about is, will you be doing the Harry Potter series at any point on your podcast? That's a great question, and I'm going to go ahead and say, I don't know. That's such a commitment, because that's like eight episodes That's right true. There. Yeah. It's content for a year right yeah. now. I know <laughs> we, we will be doing Shrek. For okay. sure. Then, yeah. When we first were coming up with the entire idea of wanting to do a podcast together, I drove up to um, Eli's then apartment in Knoxville and re-recorded a test episode um, of Shrek. And the whole premise was us trying to find Christian undertones in Shrek. <laughs> uh, but, but it, you know, we, we want to do that, but we also have determined that we don't want to do every Shrek movie because that yeah. would be daunting the last ones were really bad so. yeah and it, nobody would listen to those because yeah. nobody saw those movies um i did unfortunately what oh, no. i probably still wouldn't want to oh, no. i wouldn't want to yeah <laughs> i still wouldn't want to listen to them rehashed but you know we were we were children we made i, I was young i needed the money yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um well, thank you clint uh yeah. for joining us i know that um beforehand i pitched that clint's co-host um Eli Shapsmith was also going to be with us, and he is going to be with us, but he's not going to be with us here in studio. Uh, unfortunately, he could not make it today. He's in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> he's gone. May he to- rest in peace. Yeah. Uh, but before he died, um, he was fortunate, or he was gracious enough to uh, record um, his top 10 for us. So you will hear his top 10 along with our. Uh, countdown as well alongside the show he just can't be with us today and, but, and the great thing is that we get to entirely rip apart his top 10 list right yeah. and, and he, he has, can't defend himself, he can't so defend himself. Yeah. Yeah. but thanks elisha for uh for doing that um and we we're excited to have uh, your feedback as well here on on the he lives in hickson i just realized that that's <laughs> Wait, actually he actually lives in let's hickson. just yell out the window maybe he'll hear us yeah well yeah, yeah. It's warm outside, so it's totally fine. That's true, yeah. yeah you'll yeah. have like a bell that you ring to uh, <laughs> signal your other hits tonight. Exactly, oh, yeah. Wings. I was going to say, yeah, it's <laughs> wings. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, in just a moment, we're going to be going through in detail our top 10 movies of 2018. But first, we're going to warm up by getting all our negativity out of the way. And we're going to do that by going around the table here and saying what has been our personal worst movie of 2018. Clint, would you like to do the honors of going first? Absolutely. Um... So we are recording this, you know, while it's still in the um, the cold season, as winter, as some might call it. 
Um, and I saw a movie that is entirely dedicated, in a sense, to uh, the cold season. Uh, my least favorite movie of the year is The Grinch, uh, which stars Benedict Cumberbatch, mm. who did not speak in his Benedict Cumberbatch voice. <laughs> it's uh, kind of jarring. Yeah. Keenan Thompson did speak Kenan, in his Keenan Thompson voice. He though. did, yeah. Um, Best so, part of the movie. Yeah, so... Uh, uh, to to not uh, tease the future anymore, um, boys. I know that I'm the only one married here. Correct. <laughs> wow. Right, okay. So. Just come for our lives like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I know that y'all are still working yeah. between the two of you, but uh, <laughs> uh, when you get married, your sphere of everything will I will expand. Uh, your sphere of love, your sphere of influence, and your sphere of responsibility. Uh, for me, my sphere of watching movies uh, decreased significantly, <laughs> and this was a movie that my wife and I could both agree on. The movie was terrible. Uh, it had pentatonics in it, which is... They were actually in they the were, movie? Well, their voices. They lent their voices to some... <laughs> okay. There was some, a choir. Some yeah. singing. Yeah. yeah, no, there wasn't a live-action clip where they like, <laughs> put in pentatonics walking okay. through Whoville, but... Might, uh, might have been better if they did, Yeah, who, who asked for a rehashing of the Grinch yeah. from Illumination hey, Pictures. This movie is making a lot of money, so I think clearly someone wanted this. I think small children and their There's parents. a Grinch for every generation, I guess. The the time for the Jim Carrey one. Okay, the Jim Carrey one. Okay, it's been a long time since I've seen that one, but I I liked this more than the Jim Carrey no, one. No, I saw the Jim the Carrey Jim... one is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, which means it's good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I mean, yeah. I, the differences of opinion. I mean, I haven't seen either one of them yeah. to be honest with you. I'm not a big holiday movie person. I gave so. I gave a short review of it on the podcast a couple episodes ago, and I said this is the most average movie you will find <laughs> in 2018. It doesn't do anything wrong. It doesn't do anything right. It was it was the type of movie where you could, if the if the Grinch you know dabbed on screen, it would feel entirely <laughs> appropriate. Appropriate. He's yeah. <laughs> like, oh, okay, that makes sense. That's a, that's a character choice that he Max was Max is super cute yeah. though in the movie. Yeah, uh, why does why does he have a dog? Because like, he doesn't want to be completely alone. He only wants to be mostly alone. The right. ultimate the question that people are asking alongside is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Why does the Grinch have a dog? I feel like I've seen that a lot. Well, it's because somebody didn't want him and he threw him away as trash. Yeah. That's why he's on Mount Crump. That's literally that's why. Actually, no, that's literally yeah, why. That's the literal <laughs> yeah, which reason. Which is sad. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Clint. Um, yeah, I think welcome. that seems like a, an excellent choice from from what I've heard about the movie. Um, Elisha didn't actually. I don't. I think it was probably my bad. Didn't we? Didn't ask him to record a worst movie. But um, so we'll go on to my worst movie now. And before we get to this movie, so I want to say uh, up front that when I think about what is the worst movie of the year, I'm not just thinking about what is the worst quality wise. Because if I was deciding on that, the answer would definitely be Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom. <laughs> I mean, that was by far the worst movie that I saw this year. You know, we reviewed it on the podcast begrudgingly. I was begging you for months. To, but it's true. He literally, <laughs> he was groveling since we started, like, literally before we recorded the first episode. He was like, Scott, like, I know we're going to probably have to review this movie yeah. later in the year, but can we please not? I'm like, no, we're going to review this But see, this is why, this is exactly why I don't count it as my worst movie of the year, because I had no expectations. In fact, I in fact, I expected it to be as terrible as it was. And so yeah. there was something almost oddly comforting about the fact <laughs> that it follows through on exactly what I expected. You and I saw Jurassic World yeah, together. and I hated it too. And I went to the hospital afterwards. <laughs> not, not a joke. I did go to the hospital 30 minutes after there you go. seeing I that mean, movie. 
if that's any that, indicator. Right. Please. So, but but so that's the thing. When I think about these movies, I'm also thinking about my expectations going into the movies. So when I chose my worst movie of the year, I chose a movie that, by all intents for all intents and purposes, should have been good. There is nothing about this movie that. Um, suggest that it was going to be the absolute stinker that it was. Mm-hmm. The people involved are very talented for the most part. And yet what was produced was a really unholy mishmash of just awful components. But before I, I say what the movie is, so Clint doesn't know what my worst movie is. I haven't told him ahead of time. Okay. And I want to play a clip uh, from one of my favorite follows on Twitter. He's a comedian. His name's Demi Adija Ebay. And he, he also hosts a podcast called uh, Punch Up the Jam, a really funny music podcast, which you should check out. But he recorded a uh, what he calls a rejected theme song for this movie. <laughs> and it's pretty hilarious. It's only about 50 seconds long. But I want to play this rejected theme song because I think that it, it actually, honestly, it accurately sums up one of the main reasons why I, I didn't like this movie. Um, and then we're going to see if Clint can guess what the movie is just from the theme song. So. Feel, and also feel free to jump in at any point because if you guess it earlier, it's even Here more we go. But I want to listen to the whole song because it's yeah. great, yeah. Remember King Kong? Remember Ferris Bueller? Remember War Games? And Back to the Future? Remember Tomb Raider? Remember Weird Science? Remember Battletoads and the Iron Giant? Remember Star Wars and Transformers the movie? Remember Ghostbusters? Remember the Goonies? Remember when Neon used to be trendy? Remember the Where's the Beef Lady from Wendy's? I like this. It's great, right? Remember Akira? That's from Japan. Remember Galaga and Mrs. Pac-Man? Remember Contra? Remember Street Fighter? Remember the A-Team? Remember Knight Rider? Remember The Simpsons, seasons 1 through 9? Remember logging on to America online? Remember Highlander and Highlander 2? Remember Star Trek? We certainly do. (laughs) There you go. There, there is my worst movie of the year. I was uh, gonna say Venom. St- yeah, no. Uh, that if I had seen it, it probably would have been down there. But my worst movie of the year of the of the year is Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One, uh, based on the popular novel. Um, really, just honestly, you know, as comedic as that song is, like I said, I think it sums up what I don't like about the movie. One of the many things I don't like about the movie, which is that it, the way that it integrates these 80s references is so obvious and like doesn't really pertain to the plot. It's really ju- they're really just saying, oh, hey, remember this thing that we liked in the 80s? Wasn't that cool? I think like the and, and this movie has no target audience, right? Like <laughs> because it's too over explainy for people who actually lived through the 80s and people but people who you know, our our age are probably not going to get a lot of the references. So there's like this, it it exists in this awful middle ground. I think the best example is how, you know, we have maybe the one good set piece in the movie involves The Shining, uh, where they go to the Overlook Hotel and there's all these references to The Shining, right? So there's, uh, you know, the twins, there's an elevator full of blood. But a couple scenes before that, they have The Shining has come up in in dialogue because it's like the next place they need to go or whatever. And they're like, yeah, oh, it's from the Sh- the Overlook Hotel. It's from The Shining. You know, the 1980 novel by Stephen King. Or and they're explaining what The Shining mm-hmm. is. And then two scenes later, they have all of these, like, insider references to The Shining. Like, and I'm sitting here <laughs> like, well, okay, so the people who you have to explain what The Shining is to them, they're not going to understand the references. And the people who are going to understand the references don't need to have The Shining explained to them. And so it's it, it just exists in this awful middle ground, again, where... 
it doesn't know there's no one who this movie is supposed to be for and the tacked on references uh the awful lines of dialogue like maybe my my favorite howler line of dialogue this year when uh parzival the main character he points his gun at Ben Mendelsohn's oh, character, God. the villain, and line. instead of saying, as a normal person would would say, "You killed my aunt," he says, "You killed my mother's sister." <laughs> For some reason, it just explains like how, we're, we got to know exactly how this person was related to you. Well, he's doing a report on genealogy. Yeah. Well, it's really important that it's not his dad's sister because right, uh, yeah. no one cares about her at all. You so, killed my uh, mother's sister, not it's, that one, the the other one, not my, not this aunt, the other aunt. Yes, exactly. And it does. It also does my favorite thing where a character acknowledges that something is super cheesy, but then says it anyway, as if the <laughs> fact that he acknowledged that it's cheesy somehow makes up for the fact that it's cheesy, which of course it does not. Um, Self-referential humor, though. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, this movie was super disappointing. Like, it has obviously Steven Spielberg, one of the greatest directors of all time. Like he, you expect way better from him. We also have Olivia Cook um, playing, uh, I can't remember what her character's name is, but she's the female lead in this. She's actually going to show up in a movie which is on my best list. I'm, I mean, I really enjoy her performances. Um, so she should have, you know, she she deserved better. And, I mean, you also have Mark Rylance, Academy Award winner in this, uh, in really just in flashback scenes. And Ben Mendelsohn. For and Ben B- Mendelsohn. For the BFG, right? Yes, of course. <laughs> okay, that's um, and so, I mean, everyone in this movie, it should have added up to a good movie. She plays Artemis. Olivia Artemis, Artemis, yeah. It's, it's, you know, you can point to so many areas where it went wrong, but I think, you know, I've probably ranted too much about it already. But that's my worst movie of the year, not just because the quality of the movie is low, but also because I expected it to be a lot better, and it should have been a lot better. So there you go, Ready Player One. And if you really want the full review of Ready Player One, yeah. we unfortunately spent about 50 minutes letting Scott rant about it. Uh, back it in wasn't March. all me ranting. He's but, yeah. blue right now. Like... <laughs> yeah. He's the color of Parzival in the movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. So my worst movie, it similar to Scott, I thought this was easily the worst movie I saw this year, but it's a different movie. It's not Ready Player One. It's Hot Summer Nights, which was so stinker. good that it didn't get a theater theatrical <laughs> yeah. release. Uh, I think I gave it a nice hot 2.0 out of 10. Uh, I wasn't much higher if I was higher. I think, yeah, yeah you think you were a three. Yeah. Um, Timothy Chalamet, Maika Monroe, some other... Again, good talent. Y- yes, but this movie is is, yes, is not good. I don't even know where to start because almost everything about this movie is terrible. Uh, th- I will say this because I have to mention it every single time it comes up in a movie, and so I might as well point to this as the as the point that... The, the straw that broke the camel's back for me as I, I watched this movie in my apartment... And it, this was the, the voiceover at the beginning and end of the yeah. movie is awful. Absolutely horrific. It, it really is. It's, it's like a 10-year-old kid who is speaking like he's Philip Roth. And you have no idea who this guy is in the entire movie. <laughs> yeah, until the very end you find out who he is. But it's not even an important, irrelevant no, it's, character. No, it's not at all. At all. It's, yeah. it's so bad. And you also, you forgot to mention the great, uh, and by great I mean horrible, cameo by William Fickner, who plays like this crazy <laughs> drug dealer and is just so over the top. Honestly, I kind of wish the rest of the movie had been on his level in terms of like <laughs> just gone completely over the top. Oh, but yeah, this was, a, this was a really disappointing movie, not least because you have A24 distributing it, who usually does great stuff. You also have, again, Timothy Chalamet, Micah Monroe, two of the most promising like young actors in the game today. Um, and yet this movie was just horrible. So this, this, we were talking off air before this about the movie that came out this year that was recorded like three years before. This is it was twenty. It was recorded right. in twenty fifteen, and it just got it got shopped around because no one wanted to put their name on this thing. <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, apparently this movie had a box office release, 
in July, a very limited release in yeah. July, um, <clears throat> but was pretty much direct to direct to digital. From my understanding, yeah, my other favorite moment has to be when Micah Monroe takes the um, lollipop out of Timothy Chalamet's oh mouth, God, puts it in scene. her own mouth, nice. and then puts it back in his mouth. I'm Gross. like, oh yeah, that's sexy, Gross. guys. <laughs> Literally swapping saliva here, real <laughs> I, sexy. I wouldn't do that with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I I would hope not. I mean, that's just I unsanitary. Wife, first of all, yeah, really. It's just... I mean, I'd hope that they wipe it on the floor first before they did that. Just to make sure we all yeah, get drop, you know, five seconds. Yeah, drop it in the toilet. <laughs> Here's something gross. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, man. there you go. We won't focus on the negative for too much longer. Yeah, think, no. I think we're supposed I think, to celebrate. I the, think we're done. It's time to get the real reason we all came here today. We want to ask, you know, what were our top ten movies from this year that was 2018? And to set some ground rules here quickly before we get started, we're going to be going around the horn here with each of our picks from ten to one. That means. Uh, Clint will let you go first, and then we'll stream in Eli, uh, followed by Scott, and then finally myself. Each of us has uh, our top list of movies that we've seen this year. Understandably, there might be some overlap in our lists, and uh, not to bury the lead here, there is overlap in our lists. Um, And when there is overlap, we're going to be (coughs) skipping the discussion of that movie until the last time the movie comes up, essentially. So that is, we'll talk about the movie when we get around to the person in position that has the movie ranked the highest. So other than that, I think... Everything is going to be fair game. Is there anything else I'm missing or that anyone would like to add? Yeah, so we should say that Clint um, has a top seven rather than a top ten um, just because he didn't want to include... He didn't see ten good movies this year. <laughs> I didn't want to put Venom or Smallfoot on my right. review. Uh, which, you know, we would rather... Like I told you this, we would rather you have a strong seven than oh, force absolutely. together a ten. So uh, we will, you know... Clint will go first in order, but he will uh, he'll be on the sidelines for the first three. Although, yeah. of course, we welcome his feedback on yeah. any of our yeah. movies that he probably hasn't seen. But <laughs> I guarantee you, I haven't. All seen. right, yeah. F- final tease before we do hit our top ten list. Scott and I are going to give some shout outs to our twenty through eleven movies this year. Scott and I are fortunate enough to see a lot, a lot of movies uh, with everything that we're covering on the podcast. So we decided we'll go ahead and give honorable mentions because we were having such a frustrating time picking a top ten mm-hmm. between the two of us. Yeah, and I mean. There are so, also plenty of great movies which didn't even make my top 20. I mean, Annihilation, American Animals, uh, Hereditary, Green Book, First Reformed, all of these not even in my top 20. And not, American Animals, a movie which Scott, I believe, gave it a nine point something to. And I mean, again, that's I think that speaks to the high quality of movies this year. Also missing out on my top 20 are the great... I know I was perhaps preemptively agree, uh, declared 2018 the year of the rom-com, and then unfortunately none of the three rom-coms that I really liked made it into my top 20, but... Shout out to Set It Up, uh, Crazy Rich Asians, and uh, Juliet Naked, which I, I really liked all three of those movies. I think I gave in the eights to all three of them. Um, really good romantic comedies. Just weren't quite good enough to make the cut for my top 20, so running through my 20 through 11. At number 20, I had <coughs> Tully from J- uh, Jason Reitman and Diablo Cody. Great performances by Charlize Theron and Mackenzie Davis. Number 19, Won't You Be My Neighbor, the documentary about the great... Fred Rogers. Number 18, Private Life, uh, Netflix comedy drama from Tamara Jenkins. Number 17 is Yorgos Lanthimos' Victorian. I don't even know what to call it. It's not really a drama, it's not drama. really a comedy. Okay, drama. Uh, the, I don't know what else you call it. The favorite, drama. yeah. Number 16 is Mary Poppins Returns, the great sig- sequel from Disney, 54 years after the original. Number 15, Wes Anderson's stop motion animation beauty, uh, Isle of Dogs. Number 14, a movie which we are talking about in our next episode, uh, which we may have a, a bit of a debate about it on our next episode, but I really liked it. It's my number 14, and that's Josie Rourke's Mary Queen of Scots. 
Um, number 13 is the stoner comedy Never Going Back from A24, one of the funniest movies of the year by far. Check it out on Canopy if you haven't watched it yet. Number 12, uh, one of the best blockbusters in, in recent years, Mission Impossible Fallout. Um, More to come later in the podcast. Yes. Didn't quite make it into my top 10. I think, uh, you know, if you go back and listen to that episode, I had a few minor qualms with it. Great theme song. Yes, a great theme song. Definitely. Yeah, we led our episode that with that with that theme song. Definitely so. a banger. Uh, but it, it just fell a little bit short of the last entry in the series, Rogue Nation, for me. And finally, number 11. Really wanted to find a place for this movie, but I just couldn't put it ahead of any of my top 10. And that is Steve McQueen's Widows. Probably the best mm. ensemble cast of the year for me. Uh, mm, but appara- Bohemian Rhapsody. Apparently not, not no. better than a Bohemian Rhapsody's for the SAG. Um which is just absurd, but uh, really love Widows. Sorry it couldn't make it, but yeah, all, all you know, 10 of those movies, great, uh, great movies that I, I really recommend for 2018. Uh, can I tell you how ignorant I am really quick? Let's do it. When you said Steve McQueen, I, I oh, was no. like, <laughs> he died like 40 years ago. Hey, he's still directing movies. It's fair point. Really, yeah. yeah, fair point. Well, Orson Welles had some movie that he directed that's that very came out true. this year. Came so. out this it could have happened. Steve McQueen, the director of 12 Years a Slave. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. The race car driver, Steve McQueen. <laughs> Yeah, not Lightning McQueen, actually. They're brothers. That's, that's very true. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Uh, then I realized, like, oh, Clint, you're a dummy head. It's the Steve hey, McQueen. I mean, the, the British. The one. late Steve McQueen, great actor. His successor, the director Steve McQueen, great director. <laughs> took so. his aura. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they definitely. They, I mean, I definitely think Quentin Tarantino should have cast Steve McQueen as Steve McQueen in his new uh, Once, Once Upon a Time, Time in Hollywood. Hollywood but, but apparently, the likenesses wouldn't work out there or something. Yeah, probably not, considering yeah. they're different races. For <laughs> yeah. White faces frowned upon. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, yeah. So good, a good twenty through eleven list. There's a little bit of overlap in, in my twenty through eleven list with Scott, although less overlap here than will be in our top ten list probably. But my number twenty is a quiet place. Again, uh, we'll be talking more about that later. But a really outstanding movie. I'm not always one for the horror genre, which Scott can attest to here. But I really, really adored a quiet place. Uh, probably would be higher on my list, just to be really frank, if it had <laughs> released later in the year and not in April. Um, but it's kind yeah. of, you know, lost a little presence of mind. And so, you know, I, I'm going through movies that, frankly, I've just seen more recently that have stuck, that are still with me, either because of recency or just because they're better movies. It's hard to say. But uh, A Quiet Place, really great work from, for well, I guess not first-time director John Krasinski, but really great work from John Krasinski, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. who also acted, and as well as Emily Blunt, who might might get an Oscar nomination for that. Yes. Uh, although maybe Mary Poppins Returns is more likely. Hopefully for something. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, number 19, The Favorite. Uh, we've already, you know, Scott's already mentioned this one as well. Number 18, Thoroughbreds. Number 17, as the entire room here is going to roll their eyes hard at what my 17 is. It's 8th grade. Boom. (laughs) Yeah, 17 or 8th grade. Great movie, but number 17 for me. Uh, The Wife, one of my favorite performances of the year from, by Glenn Close. Great action all around. Is she going to win an Oscar? I'm not, I don't know. I'm looking um, at the Gallup polls and it says that she is. I, I hope so. <laughs> I, 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 mean, I would vote I would vote for it. It would be kind of a body of work Oscar, but I also think she's great in this movie. That's what I was thinking is that it will be a body of work yeah. Oscar. No, she's great. And, you know, she overshadows some also really great performances. Christian Slater as well as, I forget who's playing her husband in this movie. Jonathan Price. Jonathan Price. Great that's as right. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, great movie. Uh, one of my favorite films uh, of the year, just from like a, a personal standpoint uh, in terms of rom-coms, but Love, Simon is my number 15 Still uh, haven't seen it, actually. Yeah, it's a crime that you haven't seen this movie. I know. You love coming of age movies. I do, movies. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Love, Simon, great movie, by directed by Greg Berlanti of comic book of TV course. show fame. Uh, he, he's kind of a, he was the showrunner for Arrow and The Flash, I think, and kind of 
shifted gears a little bit here and, and has directed a really a really wonderful movie uh, in, in my opinion. Uh, Annihilation's my number fourteen. Really loved this this film. Huge Alex Garland film. Uh, sorry, huge Alex Garland fan. I loved his uh, the book The Beach, uh, which was something mm-hmm. I read in high school. Then and was a huge fan of Ex Machina when it came out a few years ago. And this movie starring Natalie Portman in the lead role. Uh, is fantastic. Would 100% recommend for those of you interested in sort of a, a, a sci-fi thriller kind of, kind of movie. My number 13, I, I couldn't echo Scott Sentiment more here. Widows is such a great movie. Elizabeth Debicki is One of my outs- outstanding in, in her supporting role in yeah. that movie. And if she doesn't get nominated, uh, that'll be criminal. And I think she has a good chance. Daniel Kaluuya also very good. Yeah, yeah. Daniel. I, mean, <laughs> I was going to say that. He only probably has like, what, 20 minutes on screen but in the man, movie. You but you feel those 20 minutes. <laughs> but yeah. man, you'll have nightmares about some of his <laughs> scenes in that movie. Yeah. It's so good. Uh, Green Book is my number 12. Really liked this movie. Uh, I, I think that it's... I don't know. I know that it got a lot of Oscar buzz initially. I think it's cooled off substantially since then, based on a couple of different controversies, uh, whether it's you know Viggo Mortensen's N-word or right. whether or not it's actually uh, portraying the relationship between the two main characters accurately or not. Doctor Shirley and um, Tony. Uh, Tony the Lip. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, there, there's... What an Italian name. I mean, yeah, name. you Truly. can't think of a more New Yorker name than that. Yeah, I, so it's one of those things where, like, you know... I mean, it won the uh, Best Picture Award at, I'm forgetting, the Gotham Awards? Is that what it was? It might have been at the Gotham Awards. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, so one it was of those a, early ones we so it was a really Yeah, one of the early ones, a frontrunner for Best Picture. And I, my because of all these different controversies that are popping up, it seems like it's it's kind of losing its its head of steam here. But yeah, and then uh, number 11, Can You Ever Forgive Me, which we'll be talking about a little bit later. A truly great performance by Melissa McCarthy, as well as Richard E. Grant, and we'll talk about that more later. That's the one with the puppets, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> the puppets. The Happy Time Murders, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh, no. I God bless that we didn't have to see that. Well, also. what's great is that, he, I know we talked about this on the podcast, was they got sued by yeah. the Muppets. By, by uh, yeah. Uh, who's the... Jim Henson. Yeah, Jim Henson. Estate. Estate, yeah, because yeah. he's passed, but yeah. Oh man, well, well, I love it. Well, that that was our Scott and I's twenty through eleven list, and why don't we just go ahead and, and jump right into our uh, top ten list now from twenty eighteen. Twenty eighteen, um, Clint, uh, like we mentioned, you you have a top seven list, but Eli does have a number ten. Scott, we're gonna let you kind of helm the role of voicing of being the voice of Eli and the numbers, and then we'll of course let Eli explain himself, but. Uh, go ahead. What is, what is Eli's number 10? Eli's number 10 is a movie which I've already mentioned. That's Mission Impossible Fallout, uh, you know, the latest in the Mission Impossible series. Uh, however, this features later on, uh, higher on one of our lists, um, and so we'll discuss it further uh, when we get to that uh, time in the show. Um, so we'll, we'll wait to hear his thoughts until then, but his number 10 is Mission Impossible Fallout. We're also going to pump the brakes on my number 10, which is uh, my favorite sequel of the year, uh, Creed II, directed by Stephen Cable Jr. Um, again, features higher on someone's list, so we'll uh, we'll wait to get there, but I think we'll hear from Scott on his number 10. Yeah, right absolutely. Now. So I, I don't even know if we can have... Oh, no, we can't have a discussion because Scott Harvey uh-huh. here has seen has seen that, has seen this movie, but I don't know if... Well, maybe Eli saw it as well, but... I think Clint, he did, actually. Yeah. Okay, yeah, but Clint, uh, I don't think... I think this one maybe missed your radar, <laughs> but my number 10 for the year is uh, a documentary called Three Identical Strangers. Uh, really wonderful documentary that I saw over the summer. I missed it in its like initial release, but managed to catch it in my indie movie theater. And it, it's a it's a truly outs- like kind of you know astounding documentary about yeah. uh, three triplets uh, separated at birth, who then found themselves later found each other later in life um, after the two of them attended the same college. Um, Scott, I, I thought, I know one of your main complaints about this movie is that it tries to do too much and has too many thesis statements, I think is what you talked about when we talked about it on the show. Uh, 
part of me, one of the things I really liked about this is that it really felt like a, a three-part story, which in some ways means that I kind of liked it for the reason that you didn't like it as much, but I wanted to let you voice your thoughts before I talk about, you know, the real reasons why it's number 10 on my list. Yeah, I mean, for me, the story is obviously incredible, and, and watching the story unravel is, is, you know, really fascinating, and I think the, the documentary gets the storytelling part of it really right. Mm. For me, I wanted more of a commentary, more, I wanted the directors to impose their their uh, vision, so to speak, more. I wanted to know, when I walked away from this movie, you know, what was the point? What do I need to think about this entire thing? Uh, you know, like, how am I supposed to feel about what happened to uh, these three guys? Because, you know, we do find out some, some pretty disturbing things um, later on in the movie. Uh, and I feel like the directors sort of wanted to have their cake and eat it too by presenting all of these different theories on, you know, you know, what was behind the madness um, without really saying, here's what we think, here's what's really backed up by the evidence. So I came out of the movie, you know, and I didn't really know what to think except, wow, that was a really interesting story. And I guess I just wanted more from this documentary. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's definitely a fair assessment of what the director um, who's Tim Wardle is the director Yeah, um, wants, wants you to do. And I actually really like that, right? Because I don't think it, it ultimately... I do think it takes a stance on some things. It definitely takes a stance on the kind of scientific freedom that some of the some of the individuals responsible for the psychological study that was taking place, which is oh for the for those of you who don't know, uh, basically these these people these triplets were separated at birth um, as a part of a psychological experiment. Right. They were put up for adoption um, and they were adopted to different areas. The problem is. Uh, a lot of the so the the families involved were not told that the their son mm-hmm. had brothers essentially identical identical uh, mm-hmm. triplets, huh. and so it only comes about much later on around the time that they're in college that they you know discover each other that they actually learn a lot about each other that they have a lot of things in common, um, and ultimately become extremely close. Not to I don't want to spoil too much of the movie going on past that, <coughs> but uh, a lot of the second and third acts of the movie revolve around all right. You know, what does it mean for us as individuals to be triplets? So what does that mean for our identity? What does it mean for our identity that we were separated at birth? Uh, and ultimately, is it okay what these you know scientists did, essentially? Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a, a really well done document documentary. And, you know, what Scott's talking about here is that it doesn't take a stance on every question because I'm not sure that there is a right answer. Um, and, I'm, and, I, and I would feel uncomfortable if the, if the documentarians took a stance on this. And, and I understand that that doesn't necessarily work for everyone, but it really worked for me. And I, I really love this. Film. I gave it a 10. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, you know, there probably aren't answers to some of these questions. But for me, when I think about the documentaries that I saw this year, I think I probably liked uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor and maybe even RBG a little bit more than this one, although it's still a fascinating movie and I would still recommend it for sure. All right, we're going to move on now to Elisha's number nine. Again, a movie that we're going to delay to hear his thoughts on because it appears on one or more of our lists a little bit later in the show, but that's Spike Lee's Black Klansman. Uh, Next up is my number nine, which is uh, one of the big movies from this year, uh, and that's A Star is Born, directed by Bradley Cooper, starring himself and Lady Gaga. Again, we're going to wait to discuss this one. Uh, I know we're we're punting on a lot of these to start with, but... uh, I, I, you trust us. We, we will be getting to all of these, you know, a little yeah. bit later in the episode. Yeah, back half of the episode will definitely be more full of, of discussion here. But my, the next movie we're going to be talking about is um, not the one I'm about to say now because it's Black Panther. <laughs> Black Panther is my number nine. Uh, unsurprisingly, this is higher up on on some other people's here's list because it is a fantastic movie. I wish I could have found a place for it higher on my list, even because it is one of the best movies of 2018. But uh, it, it came in at number nine for me. 
Yeah. Uh, next, we're going to move on uh, to Elisha's number eight, which is A Star is Born. Uh, unfortunately, this is not what I was alluding to when I said it's higher, because <laughs> it's even higher on someone else's list. So we're going to punt again. Uh, my number eight uh, is, one more punt. is one more punt, uh, and that is the movie Leave No Trace, directed by Deborah Granick. We will get to that in just a moment. But, awesome. Scott, we'll go to your number eight now. Yeah, my number eight, and we have to talk about now, it's already been mentioned once, and so, you know, we're getting the, we're getting the emotional payoff earlier than expected for this movie, maybe. But <laughs> I hope you stuck with it. It's us, not yeah. a star is born. My number eight is Creed Two, uh, directed by Stephen Capel Jr. It was also on, on Scott's list. Uh, at, his, at his number 10, he called it uh, one of the best sequels of the year. and he's The right, best sequel of the year, yeah. The best sequel of the year, and he's absolutely right about this. Um, up, you know, the, the follow-up to 2015, uh, Ryan Coogler directed Creed with Michael B. Jordan, most underrated actor in Hollywood as of January 2018. No longer the most underrated actor <laughs> all, no. in Hollywood. He, he really, uh, he really made me look good. He made me look good this year. <laughs> Um, and he, you know, he, his follow-up here at, you know, with him and Sylvester Stallone in this movie, absolutely fantastic stuff. Scott, you got, it was your number 10 on your list. Why don't we, why don't we hear from you first? Yeah. I mean, this is just a really fantastic sequel, maybe even better than the original Creed for me. Um, and I, you know, wasn't expecting how good it was going to be because, you know, when I first heard about this movie, when I first heard, oh, we're doing Rocky Four again, basically with Drago's son coming back, you know, we're going to bring back Dolph Lundgren. Uh, it seemed just kind of like a lazy way to tap into, oh, those people who loved Rocky Four so much, which, of course, is probably the most beloved of the Rocky movies outside of the original. Um, but, man, the execution of this thing uh, was not at all uh, that of someone who was just going for a lazy cash grab. Um, this was a powerful, triumphant uh, sports movie. Uh, amazing performance by Michael B. Jordan. Um, also great supporting work from Tessa Thompson as his girlfriend, uh, later wife, I guess. Um, uh, Sylvester Stallone, great as always, you know, really just slides so easily into that role as Rocky Balboa. I don't know point. if he can play another role, but he plays this one really well. <laughs> well, he's got Rambo, too. We got a new Rambo movie coming out. Oh, my God. I actually forgot that's happening. Yeah. Uh, but this was just such a satisfying movie. Um both, you know, the boxing scenes, but also the human drama, I think, is not something that you get, you, you, you don't expect to see a really uh, compelling human drama all the time when you go to a sports movie. Um, but I think this movie provides that, and I think that Stephen Capel Jr.'s direction, as, as well as the sterling performances of the cast, um, really make this an emotional experience, as well as a, you know, just a triumphant, uh, you know, movie that will get your blood pumping. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I kind of joked about the fact that I had said in January that Michael B. Jordan was the most underrated actor. And he, he's just so good in yeah. this movie. He, he nails it. Uh, I know there's been a lot of talk about whether or not Sylvester Stallone will come back for another Rocky franchise movie. Um, and, you know, he might come back to help direct, to help produce, things like that. But, you know, with that kind of post credit scene, uh, it's not post credits, but like the very last epilogue scene where you see him with his, uh, his son, um, Robert... Or is it Robert? I think it's Rob. Something like that. Yeah, that's uh, Rocky's son, yeah. Yeah, Rocky's son at the very end of the, <coughs> of the movie. That would be a, a, a nice note to kind of round out Rocky's role, Sylvester Stallone's role in this franchise. And we'll see what happens. I, I can't praise this movie. If you need a movie that's just going to be really satisfying in terms of uh, emotional payoff and also uh, pump-up scenes, you're not going to find a better movie this year. Yeah, and I said this at the time. I, I certainly don't think this will be the last movie in this series, but if it was, I'd be perfectly okay with that because I think it ends with all the characters in a really good place and a really satisfying place. Yeah, I'd be willing to bet a lot of money it's not the last movie in this franchise, but I would not be willing to yeah. bet whether or not it'll be Sylvester Stallone. Probably as much money as this movie made, to be honest. Yeah, that's how much you would bet. It, it did end with Rocky walking into the ocean, correct? Yes. Okay, that's <laughs> While the song plays, yeah, right? Exactly. While Gonna Fly Now plays, yeah. yeah. 
He uh, he drowned himself. That's so what sad. I, that's what I figured. So sad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It got spoiled for everyone before the movie even came out. They, why'd you even go watch it then? Well, point? yeah, because you see him walking out of the ocean. <laughs> you, yeah, it's like the beginning of Inception. He, sw- he yeah. swam the seven seas. That was his training for the you know, fight. You, you joke, but I really did think going into this movie that Rocky was going to die. Like, I thought this was it for Rocky, yeah, but did, 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 he, he lives it, to fight another if day. If he wasn't going to die of cancer in the first screen, he, nothing That's was going true. to kill him yeah. in this yeah, movie. Like, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I didn't see the movie, but the trailer is like, didn't start with like Rocky on life support being like, I can't, I can't punch again. That, <laughs> that might have been him in, in the first movie. Okay, I can't remember. That's a lot more of an element in the first movie. Okay. But yeah. Wait, did you play Rocky in the movie? Yes, I did. I did ADR of Rocky. Ever since <laughs> Sylvester Stallone got punched uh, too many times, his voice box no longer works. But yeah, that's Creed 2, my number 8. Uh, Scott Scott's number, number 10. Yeah. Great movie. Would recommend. Yeah, all right. So now, Clint, welcome to the show. We're going to we're gonna hop in with you and your number seven pick, which is was Scott's number nine, I believe. It is. It yeah, uh, my number seven pick was Black Panther. Woo, all right. the stars. Which is going to be nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. We already kind of briefly talked about that earlier. Yeah, we're pretty sure. We're pretty sure. It's I'm, I'm pretty positive. I was, Elisha and I had a debate about this, and he's not here to correct me or defend me, so, so whatever, go I, in on whatever it, yeah. I say is gospel at this point, <laughs> uh, but I was staunchly like, I, I don't know, I had to, I had an attitude, an air about me where I was like, the, the Academy's not going to choose it. They were originally going to uh, put in the uh, most popular picture category as kind of a way to get Black Panther in there, but then they took that out because they realized that was a dumb idea. Uh, but And I thought that was kind of their way of saying, like, okay, it's not going to be in there. Man, no one even remembers that now since... Yeah, yeah, can you believe that the... that happened this year? We were, yeah, we were we were big mad about it for sure when it happened. That was in, like, July or something. I was mad online, sure. yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, it was... I like wor- I like movies where they build a world and they establish a world without having to tell you like here is the door to enter our world yeah. here is how our world works and I feel like they uh, established uh, the world uh, in Black Panther of Wakanda very successfully. It's like that opening animated sequence where they talk about Wakanda. Yes, I loved it. It's gorgeous. It was yeah. so pretty. It was like uh, I you know those metal things where you stick your hand up the bottom of them and it's just these little pins that line up and you stick your hand you yeah. can see the impression that's mm-hmm. what it looked like in my opinion <laughs> i like but that yeah it was a it was a beautiful film um not not the best marvel film in my opinion but still a very good film in and of itself yeah no black panther i absolutely loved it again i mean this is just my segment that i get to talk about michael b jordan so i'm mm-hmm. fine with it oh yeah uh, michael b jordan as eric killmonger is something to behold i was actually recently reading a, uh an article i think it was in the guardian about his role and when he he was like he literally had to go to therapy after playing this role really? because he felt so like he just basically just was super depressed after playing the role like the mindset that he'd gotten himself into uh the workout regimen that he <coughs> did to, to get ready for this film and you know obviously it probably dovetailed quite nicely with the exercise regimen that he needed to get <laughs> for creed yeah. um but it was really it was really something special i think if we're talking about ensemble cast i mean we we are you know we get all upset about the fact that Bohemian Rhapsody gets nominated for Best Ensemble um, Performance at, at the SAG Awards, but Black Panther is nominated for Best Ensemble uh, Performance at the SAG Awards, and you can understand why. I mean, this cast list is a mile long, and all of them put in good performances. Yeah. Letitia Wright, Angela Baskett, Lupita Nyong'o, yeah. uh, Denai Guerrero. Uh, I mean, the list is going and one of the things that I loved about this movie is not only was it um, not, not only was it an, an empowerment film for, for black America and black culture in general, it was also a massive 
well, I mean, female empowerment movie from my mind. Like, yeah. y- you know, I've had so many complaints with Marvel movies and, and not just Marvel, but, you know, superhero movies in general with very one-dimensional um, sort of damsel in distress, love interests. I mean, even going back all the way to Iron Man, I think Pepper is such an underused yeah. character in, in that franchise when you have someone of the quality of Gwyneth Paltrow in the role. And then, I mean, okay, so apparently that's a hot take. Is <laughs> he making goop? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, some people would probably disagree with you. About but. Gwyneth Paltrow's quality? Being yeah. Scott. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's necessarily about her quality. I think Are you just mad that it still beat out? Shakespeare in Love still beat out? No, no, no. I, I'm not mad about that. I, and <laughs> as a matter of fact, I like Shakespeare in Love more. But, um, but I think some people... Are annoyed with her as a person, and so they transplant that onto her as an actor. But I, I don't have a problem with her as an actor. I was just I would think that she's a, a, a very high quality actress who could do a hell of a lot more than what they give her. I agree with, with Pepper Potts. And uh, this movie, there is no there is no semblance of that sort of um, you know almost disempowered female characters. If, if anything, it's quite the opposite. Oftentimes, the female characters are the ones coming to the rescue. Uh, in this movie, and, and it's just, it's a really wonderful film. I did find it kind of funny that Michael B. Jordan's character's name was Eric Killmonger. <laughs> I know. You, you well, expect no, his, his name's Eric Stevens. Uh, well, yeah. But, uh, and he goes by Killmonger. Right. I'm is John Batman. <laughs> exactly. It's Bruce it is, Batman. It is Bruce yeah. Batman. That's yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> it is weird to have the, the very uh, Anglo first name and then uh, <laughs> it was a little, Killmonger. Yeah. yeah. It was a little jarring. But, yeah. I mean, whatever. I enjoyed Black Panther. Um, definitely sort of a middle tier Marvel movie for me. I think. It has great action scenes. I really like, to Clint's point, the world of Wakanda. I really like spending time in the world of Wakanda. For me, though, I think Chadwick Boseman uh, wasn't quite right for me as Black Panther. I didn't really get emotionally connected to his character like I probably shouldn't have. Uh, like I probably should have. And I think maybe that's what held the ba- the movie back a little bit from being a complete slam dunk for me. Uh, but I still really like the movie, and it's definitely one of the defining movies of 2018. Chadwick Boseman, a very nice man. I've met him in person. Yeah, Clint was an extra in the Chadwick Boseman film, uh, 42. So, yeah. I'm on the DVD cover. <laughs> hey, look for him there. What, see co- me, what color shirt are you wearing? I'm wearing a green, like a lime green jacket. Okay. I remember I went well, to, that should stand I out. I went to Walmart, and I was like, that's me. Yeah, you want to wear that? So you can I got my out, sad right. card because I didn't really. Ask <laughs> yeah. Well, so I, you I, voted for Bohemian Rhapsody. That's what I was going to say. You voted for Bohemian Rhapsody, but yeah, good, good movie. Not on my list though, unfortunately. Was um, it on? Was it on Clint's list? Or sorry, Eli's list? It was not on Elisha's list. No. Okay, cool. Uh, we're going to get to his number seven though now, which is a movie that didn't make any of our lists, uh, mostly because none of us have seen it. I don't think. I really want to because of <clears throat> the the huge acclaim for this movie, but haven't gotten a chance to see Paddington Two yet, or really the first Paddington either. So we're going to hear what Elisha has to think about Paddington Two now. My number seven is Paddington Two. Um, Guys, if you have not seen Paddington 2, you have got to see Paddington 2. It really is as good as everyone is saying it is, I promise. Um, It's just, it's got the simplest plot. It's literally about this nice little bear who wants to get his aunt the perfect birthday present. So he's trying to get her this pop-up book. And like all these crazy things happen. And he's just this kind little bear that changes everyone's life (laughs) because he's so kind. And I just think that's exactly what the world needs right now. But it's also just like so well executed. It's got... Um, musical numbers. Um, Hugh Grant is so good in it. Um, it's it's funny. It's got great cinematography. Um, the whole thing just looks gorgeous, um, and it's just exactly what I needed <laughs> in early 2018. Um, I cannot recommend this movie enough. 
Well, there you have it. You know, we all said we haven't seen Paddington 2, and Elisha seemed to respond to us by saying, well, if you haven't seen this movie, you got to go see it. So I guess we got to go see it. Certainly, he's not the only one to have sung its praises. So I think I do need to uh, to see this one, but also see the first one before. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it would be 100% on Rotten Tomatoes that this oh my film has. Itself. Speaks for itself. I mean, it, it's unfortunate that uh, none of us have seen the movie, but it's also unfortunate that he's wrong about what his seventh best movie of the year is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. You hate to defend him, so. Yeah, yeah. too bad. Um, no, th- this is a movie that I wish that I had made the time to go back and see, but it just there have been so many movies coming out that, you know, maybe now that... It's definitely... I mean, it's out on DVD, it's out on digital, it's out on everything. Uh, not, I don't know if it's on Netflix or Amazon Prime or anything yet, not but yet. Uh, if, it, if it does, it'll, it'll definitely be at the top of my list to watch. Cool. All right. Well, we are going to move on now to a movie that appears on three of the four lists. It is the number seven for myself and Scott, and it is the number nine movie for Elisha, so we will hear from him first. My number nine movie for this year is Black Klansman. Um, I think this is the first Spike Lee movie that I've seen, and I loved it. Um, Some really good performances from John David Washington and um, Adam Driver, um, who are kind of the two main guys. It's kind of a buddy cop movie, but it's about, obviously, it's about a black man infiltrating the KKK. So there's a lot of, like, comedy there, um, and I was surprised at how much I was laughing throughout this movie, because it obviously is exploring some, um, some really heavy topics, and um, and it's received some criticism for the way it handles some of that stuff. And um, I haven't really, you know, dug too much into that. But all I can say is for me as a white man, it was helpful for me to to kind of um, understand the dynamics of what was going on at that time. And uh, it also has one of my favorite scores of the year. It just sounds like a, a great like 70s cop movie. Um, and I've been listening to that score on Apple Music a lot lately. Just um because it's really cool. <laughs> so, great movie. Yeah, I mean, I agree with with all of what he's uh, saying there. I think this is a really important movie in 2018 uh, because of the way that it looks. It, it really just uh, exposes the sort of institutionalized racism of the KKK uh, for being as laughably absurd as it is. Uh, you know, the, the fact that this black man... Ron Stallworth um, can basically pass himself off as a white man over the phone, um, you know, without anyone really, including without anyone including David Duke, the head of the KKK himself, uh, without you know anyone ever be ever being the wiser, just shows how ridiculous it is the the arbitrary way that they you know characterize certain people, um, you know, just based on the color of their skin, um, and yeah, I, I agree with what he's saying about the tone of this movie. I think. Not a lot of directors could pull off the great balance between comedy and drama that Spike Lee does here, but there are great comedic scenes and there are also great dramatic scenes. I mean, one of the probably the most powerful scene in the movie is this KKK initiation scene, uh, where you know the Ron Stallworth, where, where where Adam Driver, who is you know imitating playing Ron Stallworth, is is being indoctrinated into the KKK, and they make all of them watch. The birth of a nation, and this scene is intercut. The you know them hooting and hollering at the birth of a nation is intercut with uh, a scene of this old uh, civil rights sort of person who lived in the civil rights movement, who you know is detailing how he was brutally beaten by the police, and that's sort of intercut with you know the the KKK members watching a birth of a nation. It's really a, a powerful and poignant 
um, sequence, but there's also really funny parts in this movie. I mean, towards the end of this movie, you have two scenes which a lot of people are, have criticized for being sort of wish fulfillment, but which I think were, were incredibly effective. Um, you know, the most effective being where, uh, where John David Washington playing Ron Stallworth um, decides to reveal to David Duke after they've been carrying on this, you know, this phone conversation for, for a long time that he's actually a black man. Uh, and the way that he chooses to do so is so satisfying. People in my theater literally started applauding when the, when the scene happened because uh, they, they uh, followed through on it really well. And he really just uh, gets the best of, of David Duke, who's played uh, very, very well by uh, Topher Grace. Venom. Not, yeah, Venom himself. Uh, not who you would expect, perhaps, to pull that ro- role off, but he does a good job of playing like this sort of mild-mannered but no less insidious um, you know, type of, of racist. Uh, but yeah, again, this is a really important movie. I think it would be higher on my list if not for that last five minutes or so, where I think Spike just goes a bit too far and, and not in the sense that the point he's making isn't well taken, but in the sense that he doesn't need to spell it out because the movie, which comes before it really spells it out in a good way. So, um, yeah, I think that this movie, um, Again, really important movie, but also a really entertaining movie. I, I don't think anyone should let the fact that um, it is such an important movie, that it is an, a message movie, distract you from seeing it because you're thinking, oh, you know, this is some really heady movie that, that I won't be able to appreciate because it's really, really a, a great entertainment as well. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I remember Scott having that criticism of the movie when we first talked about the movie on the podcast. and. It was interesting because I, I sort of agreed at the, at the time, and, and I've actually <clears throat> seen reactions to the movie since then that have made me realize that, like, it's not as spelled out as you think it would be for some people. Some people really did need the final nail in the coffin, which Fair. is, you know, maybe concerning, but that being said... That's why Green Book exists, too, <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, people, we didn't yeah. go direct them to Green Book to watch yeah. that movie after that. Uh, but no, I think this movie is fantastic. You know, maybe it got buried right at the beginning here, but the, you know, this was... Scott and my number se- each of our seven number seven movies, it was El- Elijah's number nine, and so th- I mean this movie was r- really powerful to me. I actually saw this movie twice in theaters. The first time actually came out uh, not as hot on as I am now, and, and when I watched it the second time, some of the complaints that I'd had about the movie, including I thought it was really slow to start, uh, kind of disappeared. I it, I don't know what I was thinking uh, when I first reviewed the movie because I saw it a second time and I'm like, no, this is. This is, I, I think part of it was to, I, mean, I guess to be fair to myself, part of it was that I was expecting the movie to be a very particular thing. And it actually takes a while for the movie to get to that point to be that thing. Um, and I think that I was just waiting for that movie to get there and then wasn't appreciating the first you know half hour of the movie uh, in the buildup to him and starting to infiltrate the KKK. Um, but great, great, really great movie. Adam Driver, very likely to get an Oscar nod mm-hmm. uh, nomination for cool. his role in supporting actor and, you know, well-deserved in my opinion. And John David Washington is excellent too. I don't think he's getting as much buzz, but he really does give the sort of effortless performance that you uh you know you're usually associate with his father yeah so, uh yeah he's on he's on the short list but we'll see if he yeah. if he makes the cut to the best actor nominations all right great well we're gonna move on now to uh, clint's number six so clint you want to tell us what that is absolutely my number six uh is a quiet place right a movie that came out as um the other scott said early on in the year uh what'd you say it came out in april is that sound right yeah it came out pretty early in the mm-hmm. year i believe it was april 6th yeah, yeah, sounds right. Before Infinity War. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I usually don't have uh, a love for suspense or horror films, but I think 
I think this movie accomplished exactly <laughs> what it wanted to accomplish, which I think their end goal was not only to make a good movie, but also they wanted to say, like, what if we could make every movie theater in America absolutely silent? Yeah. And it, that that was an immersive experience for me, being in a completely full and a completely silent movie theater because people were afraid to make a sound. Because not only would there probably have been a mob mentality of people being like, shut up! Yeah. But also, uh, you know, you were so well immersed in the whole um, experience of the movie that it made you want to be quiet for the characters on screen. Right, I told this story when I... uh when we reviewed this movie, but yes, when I was watching, when I was watching the movie, a guy sits down next to me, like right as before the movie's going to start, with like chicken tenders. <laughs> and I was like, "Are you the, serious?" The right? loudest. I was food. like, "They're going to hear you." But but yeah, I agree. I mean, I think this is a what really theater. Did you see this in Winston? It was in Winston Salem, probably. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is a really compelling movie. Really gripping watch. Um, you know, the the setup of it obviously creates a lot of the tension, but I think the execution of it is really great as well. I mean, especially through Emily Blunt's character mm-hmm. and the fact that, you know, she is pregnant. She so, gives birth right, quietly. In, a, in an amazing scene. Like, yes. That is, is really quite terrifying where this monster is coming really up the stairs. Although and, the shot from the trailer is, is not actually in the movie, which I think is hilarious. Really, yeah. Yeah, the shot with the hand on the wall oh, oh, right, yeah, right, is not yeah. actually in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well... I, that happens a lot, unfortunately. But, oh yeah, no, I understand why, but it's just like, oh, it's not as it's not quite as intense. Right, when he's exactly. not actually in the bathroom. Right, but that but that scene is one of the great like cringy moments of the year in a good way. Not cringing like it's awkward, <laughs> but like hold your oh breath. my gosh. Yeah. And another one is of course involves the nail when we you know we oh first, god we it's first so painful. the nail in home visceral <laughs> right that we first know I mean, we first see this this jagged nail sticking out and it's one of those things Chekhov's like, gun this is going to come back somehow yeah. later in the film but you kind of forget about it and then all of a sudden you know you have the scene you see her walking down the stairs you're like whoa no no and no and everyone's no, no. like oh my god because <laughs> they know what's about to happen and then it does I so think- it's I agree with you it's definitely one of the best theater experiences that you could have had just because everyone gets really into it and everyone likes reacting uh, yeah really good movie Wait, so which movie earlier this year was another great story that you told is the one where the the Guy and the girl come in to, together, and he did. So is that also this was this on the other side of me. Yes. Okay, yeah, I thought the this chicken was this tender movie. guy sat next to this me. This is the story I thought you were going to tell. Yeah, the, we. I had like a young couple sitting next to me, and I was I was just mm, really rooting yes. for them to to kiss to uh, to go for it. And the girl kept like leaning in or like you know playing with her hair and stuff. Like she she was giving him clear signals, but. Uh, Homeboy was not having it, so... <laughs> and definitely was promising her that the movie wasn't going to be scary. Yeah, oh, that, right, <laughs> yeah. that's what it was. He, you know, he... I'm telling mom I'm not taking you to another movie. Yeah. I was like, dude, tell her it's the scariest movie ever. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're, you're so missing all the signs here. Yeah. If, 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 if even I can see them, then you should be able to see them. But yeah, great movie. Yeah, you know, uh, Mr. Hitch himself, Scott, Scott Harvey over here, <laughs> giving date advice. Sprinkling his love dust oh, yes. on all this, the, the kitties. Yeah, no, this was my number 20. It's a really good movie. As I mentioned when I was talking about it in my 20 through 11 list, Emily Blunt very well could get nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Uh, my biggest complaint of the movie is that it's a little too on the nose in the back half of the movie with... Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if you know this, but love was was really important nope. at the end of the movie. I disagree. <laughs> the quietest place of all was friendship. <laughs> uh, as you know, big spoilers here. John Krasinski sacrifices his life and, and wants to make sure that his daughter knows it's because he loves her. His yeah. arc was very predictable. I agree. That was one of the drawbacks in the movie for me. But and then like total badass end of the movie with Emily Blunt. 
cocking the shotgun oh, yeah. right as the movie ends. Yeah, but, setting, I mean, up, setting up the sequel that we'll be getting to this. Of course. A yeah. quieter place. <laughs> I can only, we can only hope. But yeah, I, as far as the visceral experience goes, this is definitely one of the best that you could have uh, this, this year. And I'm glad that so many people showed up to see this movie because it was really effective. Uh, all right, we're going to move on to uh, Elisha's number six now, which might be a, a little bit of a divisive uh, film, for at least for Scott and it's I. It's got to be Venom. <laughs> no, Venom is is not in fact. Are we not six, doing but... Venom talk today? <laughs> None of us mentioned it in our worst movie, so yeah, I mean, you didn't even see it. I haven't so. even seen it. Yeah, yeah. but we'll we'll uh, we'll let him mention what that movie is, and then we'll talk about maybe why it didn't quite make it onto our lists. Uh, didn't quite. Did, didn't did, make did, it by a by a lot. Didn't make it perhaps by a substantial amount, but may, also does have a lot of virtues. But we'll sure. let him discuss the movie first. My number six is. First Man, directed by Damien Chazelle, coming right off of directing La La Land, which is almost the exact opposite of this movie in a lot of ways. Um, and I loved First Man. I've seen a lot of people criticizing it as being very boring and slow, and I can understand that. Um, it's it's about the the moon landing, um, and it's about Neil Armstrong and his wife, Jane and Armstrong, um, and they're dealing with the loss of their daughter, so it's largely like a story of grief. And I love stories about people dealing with grief, Um and it's it's kind of about Neil Armstrong is struggling to be a human being. Um, he is Ryan Gosling does such a good job of portraying this guy who is just cannot deal with his emotions and is taking it out on the people around him all while trying to prep to land on the moon. And the moon landing sequences are so well done. Um, that's one thing that this movie has been um, highly praised for. And that's well, well deserved. Um, really just spectacular visually speaking um, but I also just enjoyed the um, the performances from Ryan Gosling and from uh, Claire Foy who plays Janet Armstrong they're both just fantastic yeah so I guess we'll start with the good on this you know I this I've talked about it on practically every episode since we watched the movie but the score is unbelievable I think it's maybe my favorite score of like the last five years at least like what justin Hurwitz does this like epic but also restrained like orchestral score is amazing and like it 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 pops in all the places that you want it to pop and like is honestly more emotionally satisfying than like a lot of the drama itself in the movie <coughs> also i think the moon landing sequences are amazing i mean some of the best special effects sequences of the year and I, I mentioned this with Aquaman, how there was sort of this emotional payoff where I was like mad at the movie because I the movie had not earned the emotional payoff and yet I was still emotionally affected. And I know you didn't feel this way about First Man, but I was still emotionally affected, you know, during the moon landing scene overall, but also, you know, when of course he drops the little bracelet that his daughter gave him, that his his dead daughter gave him um i was very emotionally affected by the moon landing but not yes. him dropping the bracelet yeah. into the canyon but i i say you know that i was kind of mad at it because you know i don't necessarily think that the movie earned its emotional payoff because it's not an emotional movie at all i think you know elisha mentions this um you know saying that it's it's about people dealing with grief in a, in sort of a very withdraw emotionally withdrawn way i think that's probably right i think that's probably authentic to the actual what actually happened, but it doesn't make for a good viewing experience, at least for me. Um, I wanted more from Ryan Gosling, especially. I think that he probably wasn't the right actor for this role just because he plays an emotionally like withdrawn guy in like practically every movie, he's right? He's too handsome. Yeah, well, that, but 
also like he, that's sort of his thing is being like the cool quiet guy <laughs> and so maybe yeah that's more authentic to neil armstrong but when i saw ryan gosling playing this role i'm like well it's just ryan gosling doing ryan gosling again so it didn't really uh have an effect on me so you know maybe this is one of those cases where yeah if you look at the movie from a quality standpoint, it's probably better than we're, you know, maybe crediting it for. But I think thinking about it from my own personal experience of watching the movie, um, it was slow and, and I never really got connected to the characters um, and really only uh, perked up during this movie during that moon landing sequence. Um, so kind of a missed opportunity for me, but I still think Damien Chazelle, obviously great director and I'll still be listening to that score uh, for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, my big thing about this movie is that I can I appreciated the Moonlight, I appreciated the score, uh, all these things I do appreciate about the movie, but I didn't enjoy watching it. Um, yeah. And I think that's kind of what you're alluding to, Scott, when you say it didn't make for an enjoyable viewing experience. Mm. It's one of those things where I was watching the movie and I felt like, okay, I, it's one of those things where I should be feeling something in these scenes. I should be feeling something, you know, every time one of these astronauts dies. But I just don't. Yeah. And the parts that, you know, made me feel something were the moon landing, where even the opening sequence when he's like doing the the the, the test yeah, mission, all of the space travel, all the space really travel, like... all the all the it, just the flight sequences in general, um, really really powerful. And you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't particularly impressed, although slightly more positive on on Ryan Gosling's performance than you were because you were so negative on it. Um, and, and Claire Foy. I, I get she does a good job in this movie. I don't know why she's getting buzzed for an Oscar nomination. There are better, there are better performances um, for sure in that category. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm not going to be upset if she gets a nomination, but I would be upset if she won the award. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, so first man, I, I don't think we really beat it up probably. I, I think this, you know, it's been in a lot of people's... Um, Look, I, I get what people like about it. Yeah, it's, it it's, is a really technically outstanding movie, just like yeah. Dunkirk was last year. And, and you know, it, it certainly sounds like that perhaps he... Uh, had more of an emotional connection to it from his own background than than we did. So you know maybe it, it will different audiences, different people will appreciate the approach that this movie yeah. takes to uh, you know what it's trying to express more than we were able to. So yeah, and I've seen this movie at the top of people, you at the top of some people's lists. Yeah, so yeah, I mean uh, critics I liked it a lot. Yeah, um, uh, I, I will say, Elisha, uh, as we were listening to your recording, they were all they were just trashing. <laughs> you should you should have heard it, man. Well, we'll see. This will be a good test because if he confronts <laughs> us about it, that means he actually listened to the podcast. That's very true. If not, That's he just won't true. say anything. So, uh, but th- this is a good test. Uh, he, he's pretty narcissistic. He's in this. He'll listen to it. <laughs> no, we weren't. We were not trashing you. <laughs> no, I'm at just, all. I'm just yeah. messing with you. Uh, Clint, Clint's a jokester, as I'm sure you know. I'm, a, I'm funny, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason we brought you on. I know. Okay. Yeah, because we certainly are. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> we're gonna move on now uh, to my number six, which is. Uh, a movie that was on Scott's list at number 11, uh, but didn't quite crack his top 10. Uh, and that is the movie Can You Ever Forgive Me, uh, directed by Marielle Heller. This was one of my most anticipated movies of the year. Um, coming into the year after seeing the trailer, you know, after reading the, the subject matter, the, the true story that this is based off of. Of course, this is the story of Lee Israel, who was a uh, you know, celebrity biographer who... We find her at the start of the film, and she's really at her wit's end. She hasn't written a successful book in a long time. Uh, and her her publisher is kind of saying that, you know, threatening to cut the cord in a way. Um, and she finds this lucrative um, side qu- side hobby of, uh, of 
selling or forging these uh, these letters and uh, documents from famous authors, you know, people like uh, Sylvia Plath, other uh, authors, um, and selling them to antiques uh, collectors. Uh, Noel Coward's one of them. Noel Coward, yeah. Uh, I, for some reason, my English Dorothy major Parker. brain was, was failing. <laughs> yeah, I don't think she does Sylvia Plath. I think Dorothy Parker was probably yeah. who I was trying to think of. But, um, but yeah, and start selling these to antiques dealers and making a killing off of them. But, of course, we know that, uh, you know, it's... Her, her her cushy life is is not there to stay that eventually you know something's got to give with her her illegal activity uh, Richard E Grant has an awesome supporting performance in this movie as the this uh, colorful British man who becomes sort of her sidekick in this pursuit um, he's definitely gonna get an Oscar nomination for this role he's he's really great uh, but I think that Melissa- is he the favorite to win no I guess maybe Mahershala Maybe, yeah. And they're both they're both fantastic. I don't know if I could choose between them, but but I think really for me, this is this movie is about Melissa McCarthy and her performance, um, which may be my pick for best actress, just from a personal really? level. I think, yeah, I love her to win. Honestly, I, I haven't enjoyed a lot of her work in the past, just because of the type of the movies type of movies that she generally does. You know, the the gross out comedies. Certainly, that's what she's become known for doing and and maybe that sort of surprise element is, is why I enjoy the performance so much but I think it's a really quality performance because she takes this character who you know there's no reason why she would like why why we should like this character why we should sympathize with this character she's uh, you know an alcoholic she you know is withdrawn doesn't treat other people really nice she's just kind of a grouch uh, and yet Melissa McCarthy makes us root for her and makes her you know plight uh, relatable to all of us, um, and you know her her battle with loneliness, and you know the relationship that she she almost has, but then doesn't have with Dolly Wells, who plays this uh, antique you know book, bookshop owner who um, Melissa McCarthy like goes on a date with. Um, you know, pretty relatable in terms of you know the feeling of loneliness and sort of Melissa McCarthy wants to connect, but just can't bring herself to do it because it's just not in her nature. Um, so alongside, you know, again, I think this is a, a theme for a lot of movies that are on my list this year. Alongside the dramatic story, you also have a really compelling and, and emotionally satisfying human story. And I think that Melissa McCarthy's performance in particular um, just really delivers a, a very satisfying experience from beginning to end and a fascinating story Um and I think this is a movie that I hope a lot of people will catch up with because it didn't play in a lot of theaters. Mm-hmm. But I had the good fortune of seeing it and really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a it's a really moving movie for reasons that kind of caught me off guard. Yeah, we, I mean, we mentioned this already here. You just don't expect this performance, uh, the, the kind of turn that that Melissa McCarthy puts in as Lee Israel. It, it takes you by surprise and it, and it grips you absolutely. I you know, I personally I would vote Glenn Close for Best Actress uh, of the Year so far, but I mean Melissa McCarthy close second. I mean she's really outstanding in this role. Yeah, and Glenn Close certainly a worthy worthy nominee as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, moving on, my number six is also I believe Scott's number eight, and that is Leave No Trace, directed by Deborah Granick. Uh, I you know I caught this very late in the game. I literally saw this. You know, just a, just a few days ago, uh, kind of as I wrapped up, this movie had been on my list to catch up on since you uh, talked about it briefly on the podcast all those months ago. And you know, this movie doesn't disappoint. Ben Foster, Thomas and McKenzie, uh, both of these 
uh, individuals are absolutely outstanding in their roles uh, as an Iraq war veteran uh, that's been foster suffering from PTSD, uh, who, you know, obviously is taking care of his 13-year-old daughter, who's played by Thomas C. McKenzie. And, you know, they live in a public park in Portland, Oregon, um, tra- you know, essentially off the grid, trying to, um, to, to make their own way, uh, largely driven by uh, Tom's dad whose name is Will, uh, by his PTSD and, and his uh, inability to live within, you know, society's norms and, and societal expectations. And, you know, and the movie kind of unfolds from there around this, you know, story of, that's kind of catalyzed by them being essentially taken in by uh, child services to, to try to provide a home and an education to, to Tom. And, and although she's not um, intellectually behind her peers, she's socially behind her peers, obviously. And as she's introduced to, you know, what we might call, you know, the real world, so to speak, um, she realizes how different of a life she's living than everyone else. And, you know, that she's missing something in life. And so part of this movie is about coming to terms with the fact that she, the experience she's had so far, the experience she wants to have in the future, and the experience that her father, um, just, is unable to provide her and, and how that uh, drama plays out on screen is truly, it's truly marvelous. Uh, it, it's one of my favorite films of the year. That's why it's at my number six. Yeah. It's a really fascinating movie about sort of how our environment uh, affects the way that we develop. You know, we have Ben Foster who, because of his time spent in the war, he's never going to be the same person again that, that he probably once was before, you know, he, he went into battle and you also have uh, Thomas and McKenzie as his daughter who, has been permanently, you know, affected in, in terms of her growth as a teenager and, uh, you know, as a child because of the time that she spent, you know, withdrawn from society in, you know, the wilderness with her father. Um, and, you know, they can never really go back for that. And there's sort of this quiet tension between the two of them throughout the entire movie that, you know, is expressed in what they say, but also in what they don't say. And I think that's where the strength of the performances really come in from from Ben Foster and, and Thomas and McKenzie. Um and yeah, you know, again, it's a really understated movie, but also very uh, emotionally powerful. Um, and I think that uh, yeah, the two actors do a great job, and it, it builds to the to a really uh, powerful ending um, that is kind of you kind of uh, you know see it coming. Like it, it's kind of inevitable that this is where the movie is heading, but it doesn't make the the scene any less affecting. And I really appreciate the way that this movie treats both of these characters with respect and asks us to understand both of their position. It doesn't ask us really to take sides um, between the two of them. Uh, and I, I think it's it's a really intelligent uh, and uh, important film that I hope people will will seek out. I mean, Deborah Granick uh, is really establishing herself as a great director now between this and Winner's Bone, uh, which of course was her previous film. Um, and yeah, a fascinating movie that I hope people will check out. Yeah, one of, one of my favorite lines in the movie kind of comes mid- middle of the way through, not towards the end, but talking about how <laughs> I think it, it's actually, no, I guess it is towards the end of the movie where Tom is talking to her father, Will, and, and she said, you know, what, what's wrong with you isn't wrong, isn't what's wrong with me. Right. Um, which is such a powerful line, I think, given, yeah. given everything that leads up to that line. Yeah, it really earns uh, it earns the climactic the scenes. Yeah. <laughs> it earns its emotional. Right. Pain. Which is which is what I like for in these movies. So. Absolutely. All a right. good cry. Yes, uh, a a worthy cry. Ah, so, <laughs> a deserving cry. All right, that's our, our numbers 10 through number 6 uh, for, for the four of us here. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll hit our top five. We'll be back in a sec.
Welcome back to the second half of our Top 10 Movies episode of our 2018 in review series. Guys, we've gone through 10 through 6. Now we're going through the top 5. Clint, let's start with yours. What's your number 5 for, Heck yeah. for the year? Alright, so my number 5 is Avengers Infinity Wars. So, um, <laughs> Infinity Is it Wars or War? Singular. Just singular, one war. It's Infinity War. It does feel like It's an infinite ones, one. Yeah. yeah. It is a singular war. Yeah, I guess so. But, um... In, in a way, I kind of begrudgingly put this on my list, but I think that th- this movie's been like, what, a 10-year payoff to get to this point? Yeah, Iron, the first one was Iron Man in 2008. 2008. So. Uh, back when I first, this is going to sound really weird, but when I first started getting into movies mm-hmm. and getting into films, quote-unquote, was my freshman year of college, and I did I never viewed superhero movies as films. I was like, this is beneath me. This is for children. <laughs> I would never watch this, but yeah. now it's like... Oh wow! I love these movies. These are what no. I'm it's all I watch. No, that's all I watch. So that's all my wife will let me go see. Um, <laughs> yeah, you went and saw Venom. And it's, it's, you on a on short my yeah. Yes, but uh, shortly. I, I feel like yeah, pretty much. But uh, I feel like the payoff for this movie was really good, and uh, the fact that I don't know if you're allowed to say this on this podcast, but it had the balls to end it on the the point that it did was leave it in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, was um, I, I don't know. I felt like that was successful to a degree. I didn't cry like some people did, but I had a I, I had a fun time watching it. And if it's the movie, it, for me, if I want to talk about this movie with somebody else after I've seen it, that means in a positive way, of mm. course. That means that I enjoyed the movie. So yeah, I mean, I mean, Tony, I don't feel so good. <laughs> One of the most I iconic moments of the year for sure. But a good I- meme. I mean, yeah, this movie, for me, I mean, I'm not a huge Marvel, I'm not a huge superhero movie person, I'm not a huge, you know, Marvel person, although I have seen most of the movies, you mm-hmm. know, I am I, not someone who, like, has seen them multiple times, you know, who follows them religiously, knows, like, every single thing that's going on in the universe, so I was excited for this movie, but I wasn't, like, so hyped up like a lot of people were, but I was amazed at how successful this movie is, because... You know, this is a two and a half hour movie with like a gajillion main characters, yeah. like three or four branching narratives that are going on at the same time. And yet somehow it all works. I mean, yes, there's there's sort of the unevenness and disorganization that you might expect, but it's no, in no way does it hamper the movie like I was expecting it to. I mean, definitely some storylines are, are more compelling than others, mm-hmm. but uh, this movie totally delivered for me on, you know, what I wanted just as a casual fan of superhero movies and really got me back in on, on Marvel. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to see um, not just the next Avengers film, but also, you know, next Spider-Man, Captain Marvel, everything that Marvel has to offer going forward. Um, I think... Wonder Woman... <laughs> all the all the classics. The Black Widow Sam Throw him movie to the that pit. is coming. Do what? The what? There's a Black Widow. Uh, I thought you said Black Widow Adam Sandler movie. Oh, and yes. There's a standalone Black Widow movie. Coming. Well, I would be back out on Marvel if there was a Black <laughs> Widow uh, Adam Sandler movie. Adam Sandler movie, but um, he just does a voice impression of Scarlett Johansson. The <laughs> but yeah, this movie this movie is really uh, really satisfying and really delivered a lot of what I was looking for from you know. Probably the biggest movie of the year. Yeah, Infinity War is great. Um, I, it's hard, right, when there's so many characters mm-hmm. yeah. to, to juggle it all. And, and I, I find that, you know, I'm a little bit confused about some of the character directions. And ultimately, I don't actually 
believed that Thanos loved loved his daughter uh, before he threw her over the side of a cliff. Yeah, he loved himself more. I mean, yeah, no, and I you'd say I mean you say that jokingly, but like I don't think that. <laughs> yeah, real. I mean, yeah. The movie did not earn my belief that he was actually sacrificing something when he sacrificed um, Gamora. Gamora. Yeah. And I I understand why some people who I've said that this critique to say like, no, you're wrong. I mean, I get it. I'm just saying like it didn't. I didn't believe it. Yeah. No. Um, I, I get why narratively it works, but. <laughs> Josh Brolin didn't use his vocal cords well enough, I guess, to get me to believe that he actually cared about Gamora. I, I will say I was surprised at how good Josh Brolin's character He's portrayal a good of villain. was. I thought it would just be like, I'm a big evil man yeah. who's going to destroy the world. And it's like, okay, blah, whatever. In time, right. which you Marvel, know what it's like to lose. Marvel yeah. doesn't have a lot of great villains, probably. Like That's one of the, one of the areas where I think the MCU has... Uh, has lagged a little bit. And I, I mean, I don't know that I would make th- say that Thanos is the best, but I think it's a good step forward for yeah. them. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that uh, it was also what, like, the they, they like build this also as, a, as like a really big plot twister reveal the fact that uh, Red Skull was in this movie. <laughs> yeah. That was jarring for me. I was honestly. like, oh, was yeah, like, oh, this guy. Oh, uh, yes, first Captain America. This movie, major yeah. role that, <laughs> that, um, Hugo Weaving. Yeah, Hugo yeah. Weaving finally consented to because the reason that he hasn't been in a movie since the first captain america is that they literally could not pay him enough money to come star in a movie because he hate he really hates these movies really yeah i didn't know that i really didn't know that well funny anyway that that notwithstanding i think for the most part they they balance they balance things as well as you could expect expect them to given how much is going on here it's just it is and a final note here which is why it ultimately lands a little bit further down my list and i think it came in around number 22 for me uh off the top of my head same for me yeah 22 or 23 um is that ultimately it's awesome like like i remember opening scene uh like loki dying in the opening scene hit me really hard really Mm -hmm. fast and by the end of the movie you have so many people dying you're like well like is anyone really dead right right um yeah which i get it like it's it's what you have to do, but like with the promise of Infinity War and Endgame, I think the whole point of it is like things actually matter now. But that, and that, I believe that that will be true for Endgame. Yeah. But it just ultimately, I was hoping that it would be true for Infinity War, and I haven't yet gotten the impression that that's true because now that we know that there's going to be a live action Loki miniseries on Disney Plus, what? the Disney Plus channel, like yeah. Loki's not dead. What? So. I did not know that. Yeah. I, although I, I think I mean it could be a prequel. It could set it to yeah. another time. But I mean, yeah, with the times with the time stones still in play, anything is possible. I guess <laughs> nothing. Nothing matters. Nothing yeah. matters. Yeah, there yeah, is yeah. no logic. <laughs> Which ultimately, it's really hard for me to get invested in it, it, to right. really say like, oh wow, this is something really special outside of the spectacle of it. When nothing really that happens to me, really, right. really, everyone knows we're gonna see Spider Man and Black Panther. Again. Yeah, I will say I feel like these movies were kind of like pushing it out, being like, "Hey guys, here's this movie, but don't look at anyone else's IMDb pages. Don't, yeah, don't, don't, yeah. don't read into this." I'm pretty sure they're just paying Chris Evans at this point to tease. Maybe he's yeah. Oh, maybe he's dying, MCU. but oh no, I'm sorry, guys. I didn't mean it that way. But yeah. you guys yeah. overread everything. Hey, I said this before. This we'll we'll end on this hot take. But oh boy. I, if someone has to die, I'm okay if it's Cap. Ah, uh, yeah. Me too. Uh, that being said, Captain America's first scene in Avengers still tingles my spine. It's mm, good. It's good. The, the, the silhouette in the, train, in the station. train station. Oh, it's so good. It's good. After it's a horrible just... scene with Scarlet Witch and, uh, uh, oh, I'm forgetting, uh, Vision. Yeah. 
I said, okay, I say, I wanted to say Venom. Each, uh, more, are we talking about Venom? Yeah. <laughs> Clint really wants to talk about Venom. Yeah, I just want to talk about it so bad. Uh, you should have put it on your list then, man. I know. Uh, yeah, but that's Avengers Infinity War. It's it's a good movie. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And with that, we'll move on to uh, Elijah's number five, which is another movie which none of us have seen, but I really want to see this movie. I think it's something that I would really enjoy. Uh, just, You're a fake movie critic. I know. Just haven't gotten around to it yet, <laughs> but certainly his recommendation makes me only want to see it more. But we'll hear, for him, hear from him now about his number five, Bad Times at the El Royale. My number five is Bad Times at the El Royale. Um, and I think this is probably my most controversial movie on my top 10 list, just because I don't think there's that many people who would have this this high up on their ranking for 2018. Um, it got pretty mixed reviews, but I just absolutely loved it. I loved it so much that when I left the theater, I was like, I got to see this again tomorrow night. And I saw it the next day, too. Um, it's directed by Drew Goddard, and it is very much a Tarantino-type movie, if that makes sense. Um, and as I started out watching it, I was like, oh, this is kind of a commentary on tarantino type films i guess um and it sort of serves that purpose for a lot of the movie but as it goes on it very much becomes its own thing and i think goddard has 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 very specific things that he's trying to say outside of this whole doing the tarantino thing um even while it it keeps that style throughout um and i think everything just comes together in such a satisfying way um and you know it's a lot of fun watching chris hemsworth dance with his shirt open as this charismatic cult leader character it's got this really fun soundtrack of like 70s pop tunes that um, just makes it feel like it's moving really fast and as long as it is both times I saw it I, I felt like it just flew by um, and I and, and it ends on kind of a really hopeful non-cynical note which I really appreciated yeah I mean like I said this is a movie that I really want to see and for a major one of the major reasons being uh, for that what Elisha mentioned the fact that this is you know, a Tarantino-like movie, and I'm a huge, huge Quentin Tarantino fan, um, and that that's really, uh, you know, how the movie appeared to me from the trailers as well, uh, and obviously a lot of talent involved as well. I mean, Jeff Bridges, Chris Hemsworth. Um, you also have Cynthia Erivo, who apparently gives a great performance in this movie. I really enjoyed her in a small role in Widows, um, so, you know, I'm sure she does a great job in this as well, but yeah, this is like my number one movie that I haven't seen in 2018 that I, that I still want to catch up with. So I plan on watching it really soon, and I appreciate uh, Elisha choosing it uh, to, to give me that reminder, to give me that extra push to watch it. Yeah, she Cynthia Riva, she's the the runner or like the the babysitter. Yeah, she's like yeah. the she's the hairdresser who then becomes yeah. like their their driver. Good. Yeah, she she was great. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is this looks like an interesting movie, so I definitely want to want to check it out. Um, and with that, we will move on to my number five, uh, which is one of the movies, probably one of the movies that I have gone to bat for the most in This is your most controversial Maybe. Uh, I mean, I, this is a very well-received movie. Don't don't get me wrong. Well, let's look at what the Rotten Tomatoes score here is. Okay, if you're going to make faces at me. Then... Yeah, no, okay, it's fine. It's an 86 on Rotten Tomatoes and a 76 Metacritic. Uh, and Scott had it in his top 20, so I don't know why he's making faces at me. It's but... just, no, it, it's not because you have it in your top 10. It's because you recently upped this, you, you said to me unofficially that you recently upped this movie to a 10 out of 10. Yeah. Uh, I think this is That's what an amazing, amazing debut. And I should say that I'm really excited to say that three of the top five movies that I have this year are from debut filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's really exciting to me. Um, but I think, uh... 
this is this is an amazing debut, and it's from Corey Finley, and the movie is called Thoroughbreds. Um, this is, of course, the story of uh, two girls in wealthy suburban uh, Connecticut, I believe, um, uh, played by Olivia Cook and Anya Taylor-Joy, um, who decide that they're going to kill off um, Anya Taylor-Joy's stepfather, who's just a really horrible, uh, demeaning man, played by uh, Paul Sparks, and they, they start plotting to... Uh, murder him and get away with it um, with the help of the late Anton Yelchin in his final film role who plays uh, a drug dealer um, and, and has an effective supporting role in this movie. Um, this is a, a really fascinating and also really funny psychological thriller um, that, uh, that uh, you know, develops in unexpected ways. I think the characters that we meet at the beginning of the movie, we understand them in a lot different different ways at the end of the movie and maybe see them in polar opposite ways as we do at the start of the movie when this movie ends. And I think that says a lot for the movie that, um, you know, it, it develops in, in a way that always keeps us guessing. Um, and I think that the performances of these two actresses are sensational. Like they're both so talented, um, and they're both really young. So I can't wait to see what they do in the future. Um, and that this movie is so sharply written, um, it has its own sort of lingo um, that in a worse movie could have come off as really cringy, but I think here it comes off as really cool and edgy, which is really what they're going for. And I think it's just amazing that this is from a debut filmmaker because it feels like such a confident movie. Um, it, it feels like, you know, a movie from someone who knows what, you know, ha has been around the block a few times and, and knows, you know, how to make this particular kind of movie. Yet it's a debut from, from Corey Finley. And I really can't say enough about how much I loved this movie. Um, and uh, it's just, it's it's a really cool um, and, and edgy movie um, for 2018. So it's it's my number five and I totally stand by my 10 out of 10 rating. I, I think on a second viewing, it improved for me. Um, in that last couple minutes, which is really kind of where I had problems the first time, um, I, I kind of appreciated them a little bit more the, the second time that I watched it. Um, and yeah, this is this is a great movie, uh, and it's it, not a lot of people saw it, so please check it out. Yeah, faces aside, this is a good movie. Uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, Olivia Cook, like Scott said, young actresses. Corey Finley, young director, yeah. also, also wrote the script for the movie. <laughs> I think that this movie, I mean, one thing that I know that Scott likes about this movie is that it's so tight. I mean, besides the last few minutes. 92 was, minutes. Yeah, you know, everything. There's, there's no kind of dead weight on this movie to be cut off. Yeah. That being said, like, I didn't actually... My biggest problem with this movie is that I didn't actually like the character development uh, as much as Scott did. I mean, obviously, Scott loved it, so it's it's a high bar. Mm -hmm. But for me, I actually had some, some problems uh, with some interpretations of things that were happening, including, ultimately, you know, the kind of full spoilers here. So for those of you who don't want to hear what my actual problem is with this fast forward because this will spoil the whole movie for you um but basically uh Annie taylor joy's character who, whose name i believe is lily ultimately basically she paralyzes amanda who's played by olivia cook mm -hmm. um i forget what with like some food or, or some ingredient and something or and, and, oh she, she drugs her drink she right yeah she like roofies her mm -hmm. basically and then kills her father she wants to blame Olivia. kills her father and then curls up with amanda on the couch and it's really like haunting and amazing oh, shot yeah the scene is so brilliantly done you see basically you see the drugged olivia cook 
laying on the couch, Paralyzed. passed out the entire yeah. time, and you see Anya Taylor-Joy go up the stairs. Yeah, still you shot. hear her yeah. kill her father like in a muffled way, but you don't see anything. And then you see her come back down, covered in blood, yeah. and she curls up with Olivia Cook in this really like haunting and amazing shot. I, I just love the way that this scene is done. Yeah, it's an amazing shot, an amazing scene. I just, I personally uh, didn't like the ultimate development of that taking place, and I think that. Um, one of the things that I, to, to move away to, and towards the thing that I did like about the movie, I really like how it asks the question, like, it, it really, uh, questions whether or not the people who are, quote, like, labeled by society, which is crazy. Olivia Cook's character, as crazy, as someone who is, um, you know, anti- <laughs> antisocial personality, things like that, are they really the ones who society should be worrying about or, and, and who, you know, we should stigmatize, rather, it, maybe it's, maybe it's something else that, that draws people to, to do bad things. Uh, and make poor choices and things like that, and, and not actually that. And there's this one line in particular that resonates with me uh, very much, which is, you know, um, it's not that I can't, uh, like, do good or empathize with people. It's that I have to try a little bit harder mm. to do that, um, which I thought was a really, really interesting and, and, and striking line. Yeah, and it's a really suspenseful movie as well. I'm not sure that I uh, hyped that up enough, but... The sound mixing yeah, is really good. excellent. I think that... Yeah. You know, it, it is, while it's probably at a high level, you'd say it's a, a dark comedy. I think that I was surprised at how suspenseful some of the scenes where they're actually about really? to go through with the plan are. Um, so, yeah, fantastic dark, movie. Which is good. Make our own genre. Dark comedy thriller. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I like it. Paul uh. Sparks, my least favorite House of Cards actor. <laughs> really? Not Kevin Spacey? I, You're coming out and saying Kevin Spacey's well, not your least favorite Clint, Clint, Purely House nostalgia is on the record as hey, hey, Kevin no, 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 no. <laughs> I said actor, like the character. I mean, like... I got you. I'm, we're just messing. I'm digging my whole deep right now. <laughs> I should shut up. Uh, no, no, everything about Kevin Spacey is great. <laughs> why don't everything. We, why don't we go on to Scott's number five now? Yeah, which is a movie that doesn't feature Kevin Spacey, thankfully, because I definitely would not have been number five on my list if it had, and that's uh, Mission Impossible Fallout, also featuring on several other lists here. Just missing Scott's list, but I believe it's also on... Uh, Elijah's list. It was his number ten, so why don't we uh, hear his thoughts first? Hey guys, um, I am very sad that I was not able to be at the actual record for this episode, but um, I love you guys' podcast and I'm excited to be a part of it and thrilled to share my top 10 movies of this year with you guys. So I will go ahead and start with my number 10, which is Mission Impossible Fallout. Um, I had actually not seen any of the previous installments in this franchise before um, this one came out. Um, except for Ghost Protocol, which I had seen in the theater when it came out, and it's from one of my favorite directors, Brad Bird, so um, I really did not expect for Fallout to top that one in my mind, but it totally did, Um, and I actually went back and watched all of the Mission Impossible movies like the week before this one came out, just to prep for it, mainly because I had seen that trailer, which everyone was talking about, which is like the best movie trailer I've ever seen. And I was like, okay, I got to see this movie. So I guess I got to watch all the other Mission Impossible movies. And they were great, but none of them really measure up to this one, I, I think. Um, it was one of the best movie theater experiences I've ever had. I was just having so much fun at the movies watching this movie. <laughs> um, the There's so many twists and like all of them caught me by surprise, which I think most other like spy movies, you can kind of see them coming, um, even if it's just a vague way, like what's going to happen. But there was like four or five times in the movie where I like almost started clapping. I was just so excited about what was happening. Um, the whole third act, like helicopter sequence, is so cool. Um, the bathroom fight scene is incredible. Um, it's just a really, really good action movie, and um, one of my 
favorite um, experiences at the movie theater this year. So that's why it made my top 10. Yeah, I, I absolutely echo what Elijah had to say there. This, you know, it was his number 10, my number five. And this movie is just absolutely outstanding. So much fun to see in in the theater. I, I managed to see it uh, more, more than once. I saw it twice. Uh, and it was such a joy, even the second time. I, I thought that I might have over overrated it on the podcast when we first reviewed it. But really, you know, seeing it a second time just made me realize, yep, this movie is maybe one of the best action movies of all time. It's such such a joy to behold. And Scott, I know that one of your major criticisms of the movie was that it, you know, maybe it's a little bit too samey for the first, you know, two thirds of it. Still really good, but maybe a little samey. And then of course, you know, really delivering the goods in the last half hour with the most ridiculous action sequence of all time, uh, a helicopter chase. I haven't seen too many of those uh, in, in theatrical history, but you know, this movie you know, kind of ups the ante at the end if, if, you were, if you weren't as satisfied with the first two-thirds. But even, you know, someone who, as someone who's been following the Mission Impossible franchise, you know, seen them in theaters since the third one came out. So, I mean, obviously I'm not going to the theater to see the first one when I'm an infant, but, uh, you know, trying to... Trying Why to, not? I know. Right. It's ridiculous. But really trying to, uh, and really have, have stayed up to date with this series as it's come out. And I just really, really loved this entry in the franchise... Tom Cruise is great. You know, it's great to see Ving Rhames, for example, back again in such an iconic role as Luther Stickle. I mean, you also get Simon Pegg. I think Henry Cavill is, as the newcomer to the series, you get his Superman mustache uh, <laughs> in on this one. So, you know, too bad for those reshots of Justice League uh, because of this movie. They really had to do some heavy editing for those. But, you know, and then someone who I know, Scott, you're a huge fan of is Rebecca Ferguson and her roles as Ilsa. Yeah, she's great. Um, is the tough house. It's tough house, yeah. And then, of course, Solomon Lane uh, renewing his role as well as Sean Harris, and then Alec Baldwin. I mean, the cast list is just so good, and, and Christopher McQuarrie is just proving how good of a you know summer action flick director he is. It makes you wonder that you know if you'd given him solo to direct, if it could have reached its full potential. But the, you know, this movie is the real deal when it comes to action. Maybe you know, as I already mentioned, one of the best, maybe one of the best action movies of all time. And it, honestly, I don't. You know, I don't have any qualms about writing this as number five on my list. Yeah, nor should you. I think it's an outstanding action movie. Um, you know, it just missed my top ten. I think that helicopter sequence, I mean, as you said, it's it's one of the best action scenes I've ever seen in a movie. Um, it's just one thing after the other. Like, what, just when you think they've reached the most spectacular part, something else happens. And <laughs> yeah. it's amazing. But, I mean, I think it's time to start talking about this franchise as a whole as one of the great action franchises ever and Tom I mean, is, Cruise, there, is there a better action franchise like maybe 007 maybe not like in terms of but consistency like, this this is probably the best i mean and and tom cruise i mean i've said it before he's my favorite actor he's the best action star we have um and he just proves why again here i mean so great so charismatic and you know his commitment to the role the fact that he freaking broke his leg and then climbed to the top of the building with a broken leg just so they didn't have to do another like shot or break my other leg yeah no, it's, <laughs> it's crazy it's he finishes he finishes the scene it is yeah it he really learned is. how to fly the helicopter just for that helicopter sequence i mean yeah he learned how to crash a helicopter yeah. just for that sequence <laughs> uh it's he's incredible amazing jaw-dropping movie um wish i could have found room for it in my top 10 but just didn't quite make it, uh, and I, I, I actually do, like I said before, I do slightly prefer Rogue Nation, but that just speaks to how strong this um, franchise is, that this isn't even the best movie in the franchise, because it would be in probably 95% of other action franchises. So, love Fallout. 
Absolutely. All right, we're moving on to number four. Clint, what's your number four? My number four is Incredibles 2, also another movie that has a massively long wait from its uh, start to finish. And you're going to have to wait a little bit longer yeah. to hear about it because it's higher on someone else's list. So we're going to we're gonna wait to, yeah. till we get to that. We're going to punt on this one for now. We haven't had a punt in a while, so that was good. Um, <laughs> get a break. Get a break. Yeah. but we're stretching not... my legs. <laughs> we're going to go to Elisha's number four now, uh, another movie which didn't make any of our lists, but uh, I have seen it and I did enjoy the film, but let's hear what he has to say about First Reformed. My number four is First Reformed. Um, goodness gracious, this one just hit me so hard in all the right ways. Um, Ethan Hawke is so good as this pastor of a small church as he um, meets these young um, environmental activists and it starts sort of causing him to grapple with his faith and figuring out what it means for him to, to be a, a, a pastor of this tiny little church and also figuring out that he has a responsibility to care for the earth and and it just sort of snowballs from there. The The ending is crazy um in a way that kind of made me angry the first time i saw it well i've only seen it once i really need to watch this one again um but it as i just sort of sat with it like i have not been able to stop thinking about this movie i saw it about two weeks ago um it is just incredible and it sort of just um hit me particularly because i find myself in sort of a similar place to where the protagonist of this film is um, and so I don't know, it, it, it was helpful and challenging to me in so many ways. Yeah. I talked about this movie pretty recently on the podcast as I watched it on canopy. You can check it out there as part of their a 24 collection that they have on there. Uh, really enjoyed it as well. Um, I think Ethan Hawke's performance is so good. Uh, Elisha's right. Um, and it's, it's a performance that we don't always, it, we don't expect to see this kind of performance from Ethan Hawke. We haven't seen this kind of performance from him before, um, especially when you compare it with the other movie he was in this year, Juliet Naked, which also really liked and also thought he did a great job in that. But this is really the other extreme. Um, he's very uh, sort of emotionally withdrawn in this movie, but I think it, it works for you know the type of movie that this is. Um, for me, this one missed out just because I think while the movie, you know, it, it takes on some intelligent ideas and it handles them really well. I think the actual plotting of the movie and the way that the plot unfolds um, is probably a little bit predictable. Um, I also, you know, he said the ending made him angry. I also, you know, still have some trouble with that ending. Um, and, you know, whether whether I fully, uh, wh- whether I think it, it's, uh, it resolves what's going on in a, in a satisfying way, I'm not really sure. Um, but, you know, I think that this is uh, a, a powerful movie, a really uh, great work from um, Paul Schrader. It also has a really amazing sort of supernatural scene that sort of comes out of nowhere in the movie um, that Ethan Hawke and Amanda Seyfried share that's actually really uh, sort of dazzling and, and uh, works well in the movie. So, yeah, I, I really like this movie. I think people should watch it even you know though it didn't quite make my list. Absolutely. All right, we're moving on now to uh, my number four and also Scott's number four. Uh, which is a movie which, you know, if you listen to the podcast regularly, you might be surprised that we actually don't have this movie higher just because of how, uh, you know, we talked about it recently in, in the most positive of terms. And I think this is probably an example of, at least for me, if we're talking about sheer quality, this is probably the number one movie of 2018. Yeah, it wouldn't even be a hard question for me. Uh, but in terms of, like, pers- my personal experience of watching the movie, um, I think, you know, there were just three movies which just barely topped it. Um, and, and a lot of that probably has to do with 
personally what I brought into each of those movies. You know, my my own personal baggage, if for lack of a better phrase, going into those movies. Aww. But <laughs> a lot of baggage from eighth grade. Oh yeah, so much. <laughs> hey, spoiler alert. Um, but number four is Roma, um, directed by Alfonso Cuarón. Mm. Um, his magnum opus, masterpiece of a film. Um, really, like every single yeah. part of this movie is stunning. I, I think that. It, the fact that this is a labor of love, the fact that this is his passion project, shows in every single scene and every single detail of this movie. I mean, he the visual the visual storytelling in this is so amazing. Alongside you know the actual storytelling, how much work the visuals does do is is stunning. Like, and I love the fact that the movie, you know, forces you to pay attention, forces you to read into what is going on visually in this movie. Um, as it tells the story of, uh, you know, domestic life in, in 20th century Mexico City, um, Yalitza Aparicio, uh, first time acting ever, Gr- amazing naturalistic performance here as Cleo, Marina de Tavira, really good as the mother of the family that Cleo works for, um, and just really this, is, this movie is just sort of a collection of moments in the life of Cleo and this family over the course of one year that culminates in just an amazingly emotional and also visually stunning uh, scene in the ocean um, that is one of the scenes of the year without question. Um, I think this movie, again, I think it works on every level technically and from a storytelling perspective. Um, I can't say enough about, uh, you know, really how much craft is on display here from Alfonso Cuaron. It's by far his best film to date. Yeah, I mean, what what more can you say? I mean, this movie, when Scott and I reviewed it a few, a few episodes ago, it was a easy 10 for both of us. We didn't have to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've given <clears throat> other movies 10s, but never with so little hesitation. And there's a reason for that, absolutely. Like, the naturalistic performances, um, you, you know, this, even the narrative, right? We I talked about on the podcast, and Scott, I'm sure that this resonates with you as well, but, you know... It, the, the devil is in the details of how like mundane their life is, and yet this movie makes it interesting. There's no reason why this movie should be interesting whatsoever. You're following, you know, the essentially the the minutia of day to day life for a maid in a you know upper middle class household in Mexico City, and there's no reason that, that should be interesting. And yet Alfonso Cuarón's labor of love, to use your phrase, Scott, I mean that it it imbues this movie with something special, and that something special is you know. The, the black and white cinematography, the particular shots that you get from scene to scene, and culminating exactly your point. What I think for me right now is you know best shot of the year for me is you know that kind of embrace on the on the mm-hmm. beach on the edge of the ocean. It's on the poster. Uh, and yeah, it's on the poster. It's a shot that you see on the poster and you don't, you know, you can you can even look at it on the poster and say, okay, yeah, that's a nice shot. And then when you see it in the movie, mm, um, it you know the full force of it hits you. Yeah, and I think I said this when we reviewed it, but. I think a lot of people are not going to see this movie because they think, oh, it's, you know, it's a black and white foreign film, you know, in, in the Spanish language about domestic life in Mexico City. Not exactly the stuff of blockbusters, but this is not a pretentious art house movie um, that will go over people's heads. I mean, I don't respond to those types of movies either. Just because we talk about movies on this podcast doesn't mean all of a sudden I'm some sort of auteur of film who, you know, appreciates something just because it's arty and not for the actual quality this is a movie that everyone can enjoy um and everyone can relate to you know what's going on in this movie 
from a storytelling and from a from a visual perspective. Um, so please see this movie, um, whether yeah. you're inclined to or not. Yeah, I'll be. I'll, I'll just like to be frank. I'll be bitterly disappointed if Corona doesn't win Best Director. Yeah. and if Corona doesn't win Best Cinematography too. I mean, so. yeah, you can't argue with that. Yeah. Uh, I will say Alfonso Corona does have a masterful eye. Yeah. of what he wants to project absolutely. absolutely harry potter and the prisoner of yeah this is not even the first example exactly yeah, right. yeah i mean uh gravity yeah he's, he's... <laughs> amazing i mean it, it, yeah I, amazing I know, visually visually yeah. amazing yeah i know like whenever the um uh previews for that came out we don't bring up gravity around <laughs> well scott and i were in the theater together when we first saw the oh, preview wow, see, i don't even it. remember this i but... can't i cannot remember what movie it was maybe but... man of steel or i think it was we did go see man of yeah. steel oh together God. how do you not remember that more than man of steel uh to, yeah, I know. I tried to block out Man of Steel, but, but yeah, really. But I, I do remember uh, whenever we first saw the preview for Gravity, Scott and I both went, "Huh, Sandra Bullock." Interesting. <laughs> uh, which I I loved. I saw it in like the th- massive three yeah. D. Right. So yeah. It was like oh. In my, I was fully immersed. Like then. the Aquarium IMAX? Is that right? Yes, yes. Yeah, and even though this movie, Roma, isn't set in space, you know, even though it, it's, it's not set in space. <laughs> it yeah. could be. Uh, and it, it's not in like a setting that you would necessarily be like, oh, this is going to be a visually spectacular movie. I think this movie is even more visually spectacular than Gravity just because <laughs> I think of the storytelling that it accomplishes through the visuals, you know, in addition to the fact that it's, it's great to look at, um, I think it's more impressive in that sense to me from a visual perspective. But, you know, Gravity, obviously amazing movie visually, and I, I totally agree with what you're saying about Quaron has obviously proved himself to be, uh, to have a really good eye. Yeah, Check's list. I think it might have the best visuals of the of the year, with maybe one exception. Yeah. Um, but only one of them is live action. Fair so. enough. Okay, uh, that's uh, some nice foreshadowing there for what's coming, I think. So we're into the top three now. Uh, Heck yeah. The best of the best. Uh, Clint, why don't you get us started with your number three? Okay, so my number three is a movie that I literally saw last night. I <laughs> wow. saw it last night. Hey, recent, I'm, I'm calling recency bias. Yes. I don't think it's actually his number three. Fair enough. <laughs> but uh, if it was, yeah, but um, uh, it's uh, Mary Looking Poppins. worst movie of the year. <laughs> yeah, Mary Poppins Returns uh, is my number three movie of the year. And it mostly stems from the fact that I am very emotionally invested in the original Mary Poppins and I love the original Mary Poppins very much. And, and so I was originally very, very skeptical about when they first announced, hey, we're doing a reboot. As I think this. many people were. Everybody was. And rightfully so, honestly. I mean, what was it, 53 years? 54 years. 54 yeah. years after the original was it's made. the only stats Scott's been saying today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, look at your stat sheet. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it, it is quite an accomplishment, in my opinion, that they... It was 54 years after the original release, and they fully captured the spirit of the original movie. And I, like I said, I have an emotional attachment with mm-hmm. the first one um, because I love everything about it. It's in my top ten movies of all time. The first Mary Poppins yeah. movie is in my top ten of all time. It's one of the most beloved movies. of all Disney movies, I it, mean, it's for what, sure. It was Walt Disney's magnum opus yeah. for a, the longest time. Mm-hmm. To the Lion King. Yeah, probably. I mean, honestly. Well, uh, yeah, and I mean, I think what you're expressing is what a lot of people express with, uh, you know, the idea that, well, I don't know that we really need this movie, but if they're going to do it, they need to do it right. Exactly. And they did it right. Exactly. Uh, they did it exactly. right. I mean, they got the right people. They got Emily Blunt, who's a great, um, 
I mean, I mean, I can't imagine anyone more perfectly to play Mary Poppins in today's Kate, Kate day Blanchett, and age. But she said no. I still think Emily Blunt's better. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. You know, you have Lynn manuel Miranda, who, as we talked about in our review, amazing talent fits right into this movie in terms of something, the spectacle. Of something it. I said to Elijah, probably the Dick Van Dyke of the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you have Rob Marshall, you know, a, a gifted director in terms of musicals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, again, they, they were really concerned with being faithful to the original and what people loved about the original. And I think that comes through in every shot of this movie. This movie, while the plotlessness of it, the, the <laughs> fact that it really loses its way halfway through in right. terms of the plot... It is, you know, it's it's certainly noticeable, but the as I said when we reviewed this, the highs of this movie are so high that it, it kind of overcomes that for me, especially, you know, that balloon scene is pure magic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to ask you, because, you know, you mentioned him just a second ago, but there's a cameo in this movie from Dick Van Dyke. And I know you actually have some history with Mr. Van Dyke, so I, I think this is a, a great story that our podcast listeners should hear. Yeah, uh, brief background on my history with Dick Van Dyke. Uh, he, he got his start in show business uh, on Broadway uh, in the musical Bye Bye Birdie. Uh, my senior year of high school, I, I did theater all throughout high school. I have a minor in theater, so I'm pretty well connected to you know being involved with theater and also have some wealth of knowledge of theater as well. Um, but whenever I um, was coming to my conclusion of the uh, my time at my high school. I wanted to give a gift to my theater teacher and our director. Uh, so I thought, well, it would be cool if I were to write Dick Van Dyke and see if I could get his autograph uh, for my theater teacher. And I wrote, and then literally the day before our final performance, uh, his letter, or, or he sent a letter back uh, with two autograph pictures, one for myself, one for my director, and then a letter just, you know, wishing me good luck. And then I thought that was cool in and of itself. And then about a month later, he sent me another letter asking me how it went, uh, you know, saying he hopes that it went well. And then he sent me another picture with himself and Anne Margaret, with his autograph and Anne Margaret's autograph as well. And I thought that was really cool. And I, although I never really wrote back, mostly because it was you know, Dick Van Dyke, this Hollywood royalty. Yeah, he's still waiting on he's it. He's still waiting. That's why he's alive. It's, it's, <laughs> that's what's keeping him around. But He performed in this role to make sure that you knew that he was still yeah, alive. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, I mean, he's you know Hollywood royalty. And I, it was kind of, in, in a sense, I, it was a shot in the dark. I didn't think that I would get anything course, from him yeah. initially. And the fact that he not only wrote back twice, but also sent me autographed stuff twice mm-hmm. uh, really kind of stood out to me. Uh, but you mentioned his cameo in the movie. It's great, yeah. When he came on screen, I, I cried. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I knew he was in it, but it was a very glorifying moment. Yeah, when absolutely. When he came on screen, I was like, Ugh! I was like fist, pump, fist punching the air. If you love the original, you're going to like obviously be have an emotional connection to this moment. And he still got it. Hey, I mean, you can't CGI him dancing on the table. That's yeah. really him there, even at 93. <laughs> yeah, um, really. So yeah, great. I, I really, I really enjoyed Mary Poppins Returns as well. It, it was in my top twenty, um, and I certainly, uh, certainly appreciate your your placement of it on the, on your list. It's very pleasant, a very pleasant movie. Yes, very, it very is a delightful movie for the full whole of family. wonder. Yes, mm-hmm. which I appreciate. People applauded in the theater. After but the does it have more babies wonder than the movie? Wonder. Well, get, babies cry all the time. I didn't get any applause. Just <laughs> the babies were crying in the candlelight service at church the other night. But uh, okay, <laughs> are, are you movies. equating the two? <laughs> yeah. 
All right, we're gonna <laughs> our next couple of movies. We're gonna we're gonna actually punt on. We're getting into the nitty gritty here, but we have a couple more punts. Uh, at number three, Elisha has Spider Man into the Spider Verse, mm. uh, and at number three, I have Eighth Grade. Um, but we will save all save talking about those uh, for a little bit, and we're gonna go to Scott now for his number three, uh, which is a movie that. Uh, had, we've mentioned a couple times on our list, but we finally get to talk about it. Now. Absolutely. It, a long time coming, although we haven't mentioned it in a while, I think. Yeah. But no, my number three is A Star is Born. Uh, Bradley Cooper directed, Bradley Cooper starring, as well as Lady Gaga. I don't know if I need to explain this movie that's been made four times already. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Bradley Cooper, you know, kind of aging rock star at the pinnacle of his career, finds young up and coming talent Lady Gaga. And a drag bar. I don't know if the drag bar is a, is a, is a mainstay of the yeah. of the narrative. Probably not. Here, but uh, uh, discover- it, is, it is a sign of the times, though. I mean, sure. No, yeah, yeah it's that, a it, that it would be an appropriate thing to show now. Yeah. You know, back in the eighties, it'd be like, ooh, I don't know if I want to see. Right, that. which is why you probably don't think it was in those earlier entries. Yeah. Oh yeah, no. I mean, that was definitely the joke I was going for. Right. Um, but yeah, so to find discovers her in this bar, you gotta have this kind of love affair that go, kind of goes on simultaneous with the fact that, you know, Lady Gaga is also a really talented musician. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah. Uh, she can sing, hope she go, hope she goes places. I know. I think this is going to be, you know, a real Kickstarter for her. It's going to be a breakout year yeah. for her, I think. Um, but yeah, no, and what, you know, kind of what unfolds is this sort of some, uh, you know, mirroring trajectories of career where you have Lady Gaga's rise. Uh, her name is Allie. Uh, in the movie, I guess. Maybe I should just call her... Ali Gaga. <laughs> yes, exactly. Ali Gaga. Um, <laughs> Ali, as, you know, as her stardom rises, you kind of get the uh, symmetrical uh, occurrence for Bradley Cooper going the other direction, mm-hmm. where you see you know his, his character, Jackson Maine, on the decline. Uh, and in he you know part of part of this movie and i'd say even the central tenet of this movie is how you deal with these different stages of your life right like how is Allie dealing with you know her rise to stardom how does jackson deal with his fall from stardom and this movie is just wonderful the music's amazing you know as someone who is a avowed bradley cooper hater i <laughs> still uh, i i loved him in in this movie more for his direction than his acting although i think his acting performance is, is Still strong. I mean, I, I'm one of those people who said, like, you know, maybe I don't need Bradley Cooper to act in any more movies. Maybe he just needs to direct <clears throat> because what he was able to do with this with this IP that's not new. Uh, it, it's uh, you know, this is the fourth time that this story has been told. Uh, probably more than that, but the fourth time the story has been told under the name A Star Is Born, mm-hmm. and he does something original with it. Like we, I mean, we joked already. Like there's a drag bar uh, in in this movie. You know, he he makes this story his own. He directs the cast in his own way. Sam Elliott, we haven't mentioned yet, who's getting a lot of Oscar buzz. When he may or may not get a nomination for his mustache, for his mustache. Um, yeah, for the most part. Yeah, for the stash. Uh, but it, it's just it's an it's a, it's an awe inspiring movie to me. I think that I went into this film and I was I was saying this off air that I really went into this film thinking that I wasn't going to like it. I didn't necessarily even want to like it that mm-hmm. much. Uh, I kind of rolled my eyes every time the trailer came on before a movie that I saw over the summer, and I, I, I definitely told Scott several times, like, God, do we, I, I'm not looking for, I mean, it's going to be a good movie, but I'm just not looking forward to yeah. seeing it. And I left the theater thinking, this is one of the best movies of the year. And you followed through on that, number three. Yeah, um, number three. It's my number nine, uh, but it's Elisha's number eight, so why don't we hear from him first before I give a few thoughts on it. My number eight movie of this year is A Star is Born. Um which is funny because when I first saw the trailer for this movie, I thought it looked so bad. Um, and then I 
got online and heard everyone talking about how it looked incredible from the trailer and I was shocked. Um, and then I, as I watched the trailer more and more, I was like, oh, maybe this does actually look like it could be great. And uh, it it's incredible. Um, I love rock and roll and this movie has a lot of rock and roll in it, which I enjoy. Um, it does. I, I think Bradley Cooper is a really talented director. He does a really good job of like portraying live music on the screen. Um, all of the concert scenes are just so well done and you feel like you're watching a live concert and I felt like I was a fan of Jackson Maine who's this fictional artist that um, does not exist and I am a Jackson Maine fan now partially because of just the way those um, the live performance scenes were done so well and because of Bradley Cooper's performance um, and Lady Gaga is incredible and is in it as well it's just um, it's incredibly moving and um, I think the ending does a really good job of portraying some very heavy topics I guess I won't go into it for spoilers sake but um, I just think it it handles some the heavy stuff really really well and also is a lot of fun along the way so yeah I loved it yeah I gotta make the obvious joke since he said that you know he he didn't like it he, he saw the trailer and was discouraged but then he saw the movie <laughs> and, and liked it I guess he just had to take another look at this movie uh, in order not. to really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, exactly. But I think this movie for me, more than any movie this year, when I walked out of the theater, I was like, I just need to sit down for a little bit. Because, I mean... <laughs> Hold my beer. You, really, you go on a journey with these characters. I mean, the movie is pretty long, um, and... But it's not. I, I wouldn't say it's too long. But you certainly feel the length of the movie, right? Like, because so much time is passing. You're 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 seeing these people's entire relationship from beginning to end. Uh, Spoilers. Yeah. Uh, unfold on screen. What happens? Uh, and I mean, you feel you 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 feel like you are there with them every single step of the way. Um, and you know, it's really just so many emotions. You know, you feel so many emotions during this movie because, like you said, you know. On the one hand, you have Lady Gaga, who's really success, becoming really successful, and you know, getting, having the kind of success which she probably should have been having for a long time, based on her talent. But then you have Bradley Cooper, who is, you know, washed up for lack of a better word, and he he is on the decline, and, uh, you know, he maybe kind of starts to resent the fact that his wife, um, you know, is is moving up in the world while he's moving down. So you really just are overwhelmed by the emotional um, impact of this movie, and. Yeah, I think, you know, it's rightfully among uh, the most praised movies of the year and, you know, one of the most talked about movies this year um, because it's extremely well done from, from all perspectives. I mean, I agree. I think the music is fantastic. Bradley Cooper, like Elisha said, I think I, I said this during my review, but these are the best concert scenes I've seen since, like, Almost famous. Bohemian I mean, Rhapsody. <laughs> well, the Live Aid scene in Bohemian Rhapsody is really good. That's the one part of the movie that I like. But, um... But since Almost Famous, I mean, the first scene where he come, where Bradley Cooper comes out in this crowd, I mean, having being a live music junkie myself, having to been to like 60 concerts probably in my lifetime, Good like Lord. I know what it feels like to be right there in the pit at a stadium concert for when, you know, when the rock star comes on stage and like it's perfectly captured in this scene. Um, so bravo to Bradley Cooper for, again, you know, this is a familiar story. If they were going to do it again, they needed to do it right, and they, they absolutely did it right. So Yeah, and the, and not to mention the opening song is a banger. 
Black Eyes, yeah. It's it's great. It was it uh, introed our episode about A Star is Born. So what? yeah, really Did, good movie. Didn't they record like the live concert scenes at like Bonnaroo or Lollapalooza? Coachella. Or Coachella. Oh wow. Coachella. Interesting. So, so principal of photography happened at Coachella in twenty seventeen. Yeah. That's really cool. That's I mean that's that's why I feel so authentic, probably, I guess. I yeah. mean although, you know, some people would probably make the case that people to Coachella they go to Coachella don't really go to listen to the music. They're there to uh Put flowers in their hair and take Instagram Smith photos. Ubers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you go to Burning Man if you want to listen to music. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's what. That's what. That's, that's the right. only thing people are doing at Burning Man is is listening to music. But okay, we're into the top two now. Um, no more punting, I don't think uh, at this point. But we are going to get to uh, Clint's number two first. So what do you got for us? <clears throat> yes, my number two. Uh, which plug plug. Uh, on January the 2nd, Purely Nostalgia will have an episode about this movie. Yeah. Uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah. Also happens to be both the Scots' number two. It is, in fact, our number twos as well. It is a great movie. <laughs> it is. It really is. It is a visually fantastic movie. Mm-hmm. Like, honestly, so, so good. Yeah. I've got a new story to tell since our review of the podcast. I my, one of my so Jay, who also <clears throat> is on the podcast infrequently, but but still comes on every once in a while to talk about comic book movies. Finally went to see Into the Spider Verse. He was texting me before he went and saw it a couple days before he went and saw it, and he was like, "Look, like honestly, I don't think I'm going to be that in to the to the <laughs> animation style. Like, I guess it might work, but like I don't know. And like the only thing I know about this movie is that like there's a scene in it." Where Peter Parker, Peter Parker and MJ get divorced. I'm just like, dude, just go see the movie. <laughs> just go How see is that the, the movie? only thing he knew about. It? Well, it's so he tried to stay like pretty, scene. pretty like yeah. spoiler free. I mean, but the fact that that's think, the one thing he knew is just kind of funny. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And and I was just like, dude, I can't even talk to you right now. Like, yeah. Not because I'm like upset with you, but like you just need to go see the movie and then we'll talk mm-hmm. about it. And he and he texts me when he leaves the theater and he's like. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was like, nine point eight good because that's what Scott and I rated. And he was like. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. This was almost my number one. Like, yeah, honestly, it, it was Scott's number one until just a few days ago. Yeah, okay. I, I had to make a switch. But yeah, it, it, it was. I don't. It was such a good payoff, honestly. Like, yeah. and the soundtrack to the movie was yep. fantastic. It. Although I will say they used West Coast rap and this was an East Coast movie, but oh. you can argue that it was an alternate dimension. Yeah. But um, <laughs> oh, forget it! I'm taking it off my top ten list. I didn't even realize it's that. It's off. But uh, I mean, it was just a really, really good movie. The best Spider-Man movie ever yeah I'm, I'm betting that avi arad amy pascal and phil lord just aren't caught up to date on west coast versus east coast. <laughs> that's so yeah. that's got to be a bunch of white is. people probably. uh <laughs> arad is not a white <laughs> that's true yeah, yeah we'll, we'll cut that out um okay let's listen to elisha's thoughts now he had it at number three on his list my number three movie of 2018 is spider-man into the spider-verse um clint and i actually saw this a couple of days ago together and i think we were both blown away um i was expecting this to be good but i don't think i was expecting it to be this good spider-man is my favorite superhero um and this is i could confidently say this is my favorite spider-man movie um and this is someone who liked homecoming a lot and loves tom holland as spider-man this is a better movie um i the animation style is very unique and as sort of an animation geek myself i really appreciated that um it feels like a comic book the sort of like low frame rate effect really works well for the action sequences somehow like it just um the the action sequences are so well done um and uh it it has a bunch of villains similar to like spider-man 3 which has the too many villains problem but um it feels like a comic book it doesn't feel like overcrowded in any way as many characters are in it um it 
there's so many different versions of Spider-Man, and they're all incredible. They do Miles Morales so well, um, and I love my new Spider-Man boy, Miles Morales, and I can't wait for more adventures with him. Um, but also Jake Johnson is really, really good as Peter Parker, as sort of an old, sad Peter Parker. Um, he does a really good job. And then um, Haley Steinfeld as Spider-Gwen. I've um, really liked the Spider-Gwen character um, for a long time, and I was so excited to see her come to the screen. And uh, they do a really good job with that as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of characters, and a lot of stuff happens, and it does not feel overcrowded. Um, and it just gets the character of Spider-Man and is exactly what a Spider-Man movie should be, even though it is um, nothing like any Spider-Man movie that we have seen before. And not just because it's animated, because it's it's a very weird movie, but it's great, and I want to watch it again right now. Yeah, I mean, I'll just be frank about it. This is the best superhero movie since The Dark Knight. Um, this mm-hmm. movie is is fantastic. I mean, it like I said when I um, when we reviewed this, I mean, even though Phil Lord and Chris Miller didn't direct this, it it does for me. It does for the superhero and does for genre and for Spider Man what the Lego Movie also I think <laughs> accomplished. It has this really fast-paced, quirky sense of humor. It has a great cast of characters. It has this great message about, you know, working together as a team and being a family. And uh, it has an incredibly inventive visual style. I mean, it's kind of amazing to me, as many comic book movies as there are, that no one has thought of this idea of sort of having a living comic book before uh, in animated form. But, I mean, this movie is the first to do it, and it does it beautifully, and... Uh, it, it just fits the overall tone of the movie um, so well. And, you know, this movie made me laugh. Um, it, you know, it was emotional towards the end. Um, and I think that uh, it has a great message, um, you know, that we really need to hear in this time of so many superhero movies. Um, you know, just sort of that idea that what makes us different, what makes all of these characters different is what makes them Spider-Man. What makes us different is what makes us all superheroes, and you have those great Stan Lee quotes at the end, um, which really sort of hit home. And I think that's really what I take away from this movie, uh, as amazing as it is visually, um, is, you know, the way that this movie resonates um, in the superhero genre as a whole. I think this is a superhero movie sort of about superhero movies in a way. Mm. Um, And it's an incredible one at that. I, you know, I could go on, but uh, I'm sure you have a few things to say as well, Scott. Yeah, I know. I mean, the the what Sony Animation Studios over there is able to accomplish with the animation style that they sort of created, not just the, you know, living comic book style, though I think that is the biggest part of it, right? But also how the, the blurred edges uh, of almost like the comic book pages, the ends of the comic book pages almost, it, it just works so perfectly yeah. for this movie. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I... The, the fact that it's one of those things where like you see it and out of context you're like well that's kind of weird I don't know if I'm gonna like that you know when I if I'm gonna watch two hours of that right and then you get in the movie and you're like it, it works perfectly it works yeah. perfectly the voice acting is is solid to outstanding mm-hmm. uh, depending on which characters you're talking about Nicholas Cage well, so no, funny what's well, I was gonna say so like we talked about this on the podcast you know Nick Cage like it they know it's Nicholas Cage. They know that what yeah, everyone's going to think when that, they hear yeah. Nicolas Cage, yep. and they just use it so well, and, yeah. they, and they use it to their advantage. They leaned into it hard, and it was perfect. Mm, yeah, exactly. absolutely. And so, I mean, I don't want to sit here and just repeat everything Scott said <laughs> uh, that I love about this movie, but I mean, this movie's the story, the story is one of the best Spider-Man stories I think we've seen on the, on the big screen. And, and they don't overcomplicate it, even though it can sound complicated on paper. Well, yeah, exactly, and, mm-hmm. and that's another point. It, you know, there's... 
even though it's the weakest point, the fact that it manages to me this is this is the like one holdup of the movie for me that keeps it from being a ten, right? Like this is a nine point eight. That's what Scott and I both gave it when we reviewed it on the podcast. But the, like the one thing that keeps it from being a ten, it still I think does a good job with it. It's just like impossible to juggle this many characters, right? There's like five or six different spider things, right? You have you know the spider men and women, and then also spider, spider entities. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and then, and then of course you have um, spider pig, spi- spider, spider pig, hand, yeah, yeah hand. spider hand, John yeah, who played right. yeah, voiced by John Mulaney, and you know a couple of these characters. Just by the fact that it's a two-hour movie, right, guys? Mm-hmm. Like, it, you can't, you have to give short shrift to a couple of these characters and yeah. not fully flesh out their story. That being said, it's not because I wanted, I needed to know more about these particular, about the backstories of each of these characters. It's just because ultimately you're like, well, do these people need to be in the movie, yeah. right? It's, it's not that that they did a poor job. It's just that like, well, if you're gonna have them in the movie, maybe you should have done more with them. But it's not even, a, it's not even really a complaint because it's still everything about this movie is good. Yeah, and shout out to my guy Liam Sh- Liam Schreiber as well. Yeah. Great job as Kingpin. Always love him <laughs> and everything. But and he does a great job here as well. Um, so yeah, there you go. That's our number two, Clint. I forgot to say something about Mary Poppins. Oh, okay. Um, Meryl Streep did not need to be in that movie. Yes, I completely agree. Sorry. That was the most. We I, talked about this earlier. That's the most unnecessary. I, part I of made the movie. a note about that, and I was yeah. like, ugh, when she came on screen, that was. One it I was, was so hate. clearly written in just so they could have Meryl Streep in this yeah. movie. Anyway, and, sorry to deviate. No, good, good call. Um, we both mentioned that on not when we reviewed it. That that was the most like yeah. facepalm. If you had to cut yeah. something out, that would. That's when I went to pee. <laughs> like enough. honestly, I was like, right, right, I'm done. Well, I don't need this. <laughs> All right, okay, here we go. Well, we we finally done it after this whole year. Uh, 63 odd movies that Scott and I uh, have seen, um, and this is what it has all led to our number. Our but first, for- we need Eli's number two. Well, we, we've skipped over. Oh, of course we did. The number yeah. two, even I'm though sorry. Scott and I didn't love this movie. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, we got to get to that first. Wow. My number four. I totally blew the the handoff there. Okay, it's all good. Uh, well, well, let's just uh, Clint's number four, right? Yeah, we'll take it. You know, we'll let Elijah explain why it's his number two. We'll let. <laughs> we'll let Clint jump in, and then I, I guess Scott will have to comment on it, even though he did just try to blow past it. Yeah. My number two movie of 2018 is Incredibles 2. Um, the first Incredibles movie is one of my favorite movies of all time, and Brad Bird is one of my favorite directors, so I had high expectations for this movie, and I think it exceeded them um, in almost every way. I think this movie is even funnier than the first one. Um, it's so, so funny. Um and I just love watching Jack-Jack fight a raccoon, and I love watching Bob Parr struggle to be a dad, um, and and the animation is, you know, they've improved, uh, just the technology has improved since the first one was made, so um, it just looks really good. Um, the action sequences are um, so well choreographed, it's just a wonderful, wonderful action movie, um, even as an animated film, and I also think it serves as kind of an interesting commentary on the superhero genre. If you really listen to um, the Screenslaver's monologue <laughs> toward the middle of the movie um, and just this idea of a culture that worships superheroes. And it's got some really interesting ideas that it's trying to explore. And um, Brad Bird has so many things that he wants to say in every movie that he makes. And it always comes across a little bit messy, but that's sort of one thing that I like about his movies is he never really comes to a conclusion about something. Um, But he has a lot of strong ideas and it's really fun watching um, him try to work it out through these interesting stories that he comes up with. So um, it, you know, it follows a lot of uh, the same sort of tropes, I guess, as of 
what sequels tend to do. You know, it flips the roles of Bob and Helen, but I think that's exactly what I would want from a movie like this. And it doesn't do it in a way that feels cliche. I just think it is, no pun intended, incredible. I I agree with Elisha on it. Um, It it was a very charming movie to me. Incredibles is the the first one, uh, is my favorite Pixar movie of all time. Uh, it's it's a very good superhero movie, I think. Uh, I, I will say I didn't love it as much as Elisha did. I really did like it. It was number four on my list. Um, but I, I'm, I'm curious before I kind of dig in a little further to what I liked about it. And I know Scott, um, my Scott, not other Scott, uh, didn't enjoy it that much. So I'm curious to hear... Um, kind of your reasoning behind it. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I won't spend too much time on it because people honestly don't want to hear me talk about not liking this movie because <laughs> everyone likes this movie. And that's why, I mean, I think I'm I'm at the point where I just have to say these movies just aren't for me okay. uh, because I don't know what, I don't know what it is specifically about them, but so many people seem to love them. And I never, even when the first one came out, never connected really with any of the characters. I don't find that it has the same emotionally emotionally satisfying moments that a lot of other Pixar movies do. And I didn't laugh at a lot of the jokes. I think more than some of the other Pixar movies, it feels like the jokes are more squarely targeted at kids. Um, and maybe, you know, I should learn a lesson from Mary Poppins Returns and just get in touch with my inner child more when I'm watching these movies. Right. But, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to say that this is it's pro- I'm not going to say it's a bad movie. In fact, it's probably a very good movie. It's just for whatever reason it's not for me. So, uh, yeah, that's the unfortunate reality of it. Yeah, it has an A+ plus cinema score, yeah. Scott. Come <laughs> I on. Know. I, know. I will say whenever Incredibles 2 was announced, uh, back when we were in college, um, Elisha and I like uh, jigsawed together what we would like to see from an Incredibles 2 movie. Oh, really? And it was basically Jack Jack, or not Jack Jack, uh, Dash was in the army and he was a, P- <laughs> he was a POW. And <laughs> it was kind of a darker version. Of probably, course, yeah. not, not very. Probably wouldn't have been very good. Um, <laughs> you never know. You never know. You never know. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed this movie more than Scott, but less than the two of you. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie, I think, came in around 30 on my list. I'm, I'm not sure the exact number. But it was it was nice. I just think that, like Scott, this isn't the kind. I mean, this isn't the movie that I'm looking for from Pixar. Fair enough. And I think that of of their of their messages that they often try to embed in their movies <laughs> that speak to all generations. I think this is one of the le- the least effective of the Pixar kind of. Genre. And, and I actually am someone who really liked the first Incredibles movie. I just this one just didn't land as well for me. And you know, maybe if I went back and rewatched the first Incredibles. Maybe I've moved on to a point in my life where that doesn't hit me as hard anymore either. I'm not sure um, I'm what, what that is there. But for me, I can see on screen um, and I can kind of analyze it. Like, look, I get why this movie is popular. Mm-hmm. I like this movie. I just don't love this movie. And, you, you know, that that is what it is. But I understand why people are in love with it. I understand why, you know, maybe I'll be disappointed by it winning Best Animated Feature, but I'm really hoping Spider-Verse gets it. I I, I, I do hope that Spider-Verse yeah. wins, honestly. I think just so to, you know, to signal <coughs> that we're taking a step forward in Best Animated Feature alone, Spider-Verse deserves it. But yeah, whether it will actually take that crown, who knows. Okay, but now, now I think we can get to, I, I think I've blown the hype now, but um, 
our number one movies of the year. Um, this is this is what it all comes down to. Uh, this is why we've uh, we've done this for the past yeah. twelve months. Purely nostalgia has a number one pick. Yeah, some yeah, like it's Scott it has a number out one pick. The the hosts of the respective podcasts were pretty on brand, pretty consistent in their choices. Yeah. So let's hear from uh, Elisha first on his and also Clint's number one. Uh, which happens to be my number three as well. Then we'll hear from Clinton. Then I'll say a few words about it before we get to Scott and I's number one. My number one movie of 2018 is Eighth Grade. Um, I absolutely love this movie. It was directed and written by Bo Burnham, who, um, uh, from what I understand, has really done a great job of capturing um, realistically the experience of being an eighth grade girl, even though he has never been an eighth grade girl himself. Um, And, you know, we have all been adolescents at some point in our lives. And I think there's something for everyone to relate to in this. Um, and it is just, it, it's so well done. I, I actually work with middle school students for a living. And so, um, I spend a lot of time with them and I think uh, I, I sort of, I love the middle school sense of humor. And so that was something that I really got a kick out of in watching this movie is, um, watching middle schoolers try to be funny. Um, is the funniest thing in the world to me, and there's a lot of that in this. But um, I also think that um, Elsie Fisher is so good as the main character. I think Josh Hamilton um, kills it as this dad who's just trying his best to do a good job but is a little bit overbearing at times, and I love watching their relationship on screen. Um, Man, this movie just made me so, so happy and so, so sad at different times, and I just think... Uh, I think it's so important um, just to, you know, capture on screen the real struggles that kids are going through at that age, um, having to do with social media and just uh, the transition into high school and uh, peer pressure. And these are not, you know, these are not new things that nobody has ever made a movie about, but I just think um, Bo Burnham has done it in a way that clicked for me in a way that no other sort of coming of age movie has. Um, and that is my favorite movie of 2018 as of right now. So, um, yeah, I'm very glad that, uh, Elisha and I were like-minded in the sense that this was our number one. Um, this movie had a profound impact on me. Uh, I mean, Scott and I knew each other um, when we were both in eighth grade, and y'all did know each other when you were eighth grade, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I-, I was never as awkward as Elsie Fisher's character. I was. Uh, I mean, Scott, <laughs> Scott may have been. Scott was one of my good, I mean, still is one of my good friends, but I mean, Scott he was, was one of my good friends. But he was, was one of my bad friends. But he was also <laughs> one of my good friends back then as well. And it just the it captured an eighth grader so perfectly mm. and the scene where um for one where elsie fisher's character is doing her uh vlog or whatever the the gucci gucci like <laughs> that was so perfect yeah it was absolute the way she kind of rambled on and you could tell she had an idea of where she wanted to go but she could not conceive of how to get there when it got about halfway through there and i realized oh this is still going to go on I was just entirely locked into mm. that moment and just dying laughing because I I knew people like that. I never I personally never thought that I was that awkward. I of course have always liked entertaining people and always like uh, for lack of a better word, um, whoring myself out on media <laughs> to get a laugh. But 
I never thought I was that awkward, but in all actuality, I probably was. Not as bad as me, I can tell you. Well, well who, who knows? But, uh, and then I know I talked with um, my Scott, OG Scott, um, about the scene where she's in the back of the car with Ugh. with that guy. So uncomfortable. But... It was so uncomfortable, but so good. Yeah, so It well was done. so good. Like, I, I saw it with my wife, which I, I do need to say... And this podcast makes me sound like I don't like my wife that much. I do. I love my wife, clearly. But we, she and I were just, like, gripping each other's hands yeah. because, it, I mean, obviously they're not going to show what the worst possible conclusion of this scene would be, but it, it fooled you in the sense of thinking that it might happen because the it, it took very small baby steps to get to the next possible thing. It's like, oh, I hope he doesn't do this. Okay, he did that. I hope he doesn't say this. Okay, he just did. Yeah. Let's hope he doesn't, you know, jump jump to the next possible conclusion. Right. The, the score was really good. The kind of uh, techno score so that they did to it was so very good. Uh, I also really liked the father uh, in the movie. It was all just very good. A beautiful, beautiful movie that I think Bo Burnham deserves an Oscar for writing for, in my opinion. I really think he deserves it. I don't think that he'll get nominated, but I think he deserves it. Yeah, I mean, when I watch this movie, it's amazing to me that people ever thought John Hughes' movies were good. Uh, and and may, maybe that's just I didn't grow up in the 80s, so maybe I can't connect with them the way that somebody in the 80s could. But, like, the coming-of-age movies, which we have gotten over the past, let's say, decade. I mean, let's go back to Juno 11 years ago. From Juno on, really. Uh, are so much more profound, are so much wiser about how teenagers actually are. Uh, and so much more... Uh, I mean, realistic. The characters are actual people. They're not just types yeah. uh, in the way that they are in, in a lot of John Hughes movies, I feel like. Uh, and this movie, I think, conveys better than any coming-of-age movie that I've seen the anxiety. I mean, the sheer anxiety mm -hmm. of being at this point in your life. I think you talked about this very well, Clint, you know, the fact that you were gripping Chandler's hand during that one scene in the car. I mean, that really, you know, that sums up how tense you feel at certain parts of this movie because you've been in these experiences or you know people who have been in these experiences yeah, i personally haven't been well yeah <laughs> right you know you know but you probably know people who have right um but i think that it it captures it so well like in these individual moments where there's all these moments and they build to this really you know anxious level and you're not sure whether this moment is going to go, whether things are going to go really bad, good for her or really badly for her. Mm -hmm. And I think just like life, sometimes it goes really good for her and sometimes it goes really bad. Like you have, for example, the moment where she calls Olivia, right? The girl who has, uh, she has taken, she who's gotta, taken her on the shadow day at the high school. It's like a and, senior, isn't she? Right. Or something? And everything in my body at this scene was screaming out, what are you doing? Like, she's not going to, like, she's yeah, she was nice to you. to you for a day. Uh, and, but, you know, this was just her pretending for for a day or whatever. She's not going to want to hang out with some middle school kid. And the it goes the exact opposite way. And Olivia turns out to be, like, an awesome person. I think Emily Robinson is the name of the actress who plays Olivia. Uh, she's also in, in Private Life. But she does a great job um, of really taking this character in a direction that I did not see coming. On the other side, you have that scene like you're talking about, um, I think, you know, it's a scene where when he get you know, when he climbs in the back seat, you, you have an idea that this is not going to go well, but still, because of the way the movie keeps you on your toes, you know, you never know what's going to happen, yeah. but it goes badly, um, at, you know, as you've alluded to. Um, and I think, you know, again, that perfectly describes what this period of, of someone's life is like. And I love the performances by Elsie Fisher, 
so you know brilliantly captures the the awkward energy of being at this point in your life and josh hamilton too amazing as her father i love the scene by the fire pit um where you know we see for the first time in the movie that kayla has actually really opened up to him Mm -hmm. and josh hamilton as you would expect any dad to do you know he's been trying to get through to her the entire movie and finally you know she's opened up to him finally he senses that this is you know a moment where he can connect with her and sort of everything he wants to say just comes tumbling out of his mouth like and not in a particularly like uh, you know structured or organized way but he you know he senses this moment and he wants to tell his daughter everything that he feels about her and it's a beautiful and, and heartwarming scene um, and I think people who are worried that this movie is going to be really depressing and like make them trigger them like for right. you know traumatic memories of the middle school days maybe it will in some parts but ultimately this is a very hopeful and like optimistic movie at the end of the day and i think the the main takeaway for me is bo burnham's direction Mm -hmm. which i did not expect to stylistically i didn't expect that a first-time director who's a stand-up comic would try some of the things that he does in this movie very crass stand-up yeah yeah i wouldn't I, i would not have expected to see this sort of stylistic um craft from him but you know some of the things he does with the camera in this movie are are so effective. The pool the pool party scene. I talked about it when we reviewed the movie, but the way that he uses the camera in this scene uh, to show where the characters socially are. I mean, you have all of these characters who are going wild in the pool. They're hanging out with each other and, and you know misbehaving in the way that middle schoolers do. And then you have Kayla, who's on the other side of this glass door. You know, on the outside of it all, um, totally different from all of these people, but. You know, she has to wade into the swimming pool if she wants to belong, uh, you know, with her fellow students and, and belong socially. Uh, and there, there are many moments like that throughout the movie, just directorial choices that Burnham makes that wouldn't expect from a first-time director. And they almost, they pretty, they always work. I mean, they, his bold choices absolutely pay off. This is one of the best coming-of-age movies of the decade. It's my number three of the year. I love eighth grade. Nice. High five, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is a good movie. I, you know, it isn't, Apparently it's a sin to have a movie in your top twenty and not your top and not your top. A movie three. as good as it this, is. yes, uh, <laughs> it is. No, this movie is repent. really good. <laughs> I, one of the themes that we haven't talked about that's been alluded to by just mentioned that how awkward she is, but she to be like really upfront about, it, she has social anxiety. Yeah, um, yeah. and yeah. she and she, you witness an anxiety attack in the movie, right, like dur- like right before the pool scene. Um, she's inside and she's having an anxiety attack, yeah. and I really thought that uh, I really liked that portrayal and, and trying to engage with that subject matter. My biggest problem with this movie, and I, I've realized what it is more, I think, as uh, I've had more time to sit with it, so not since so since we reviewed it on the podcast, mm-hmm. is that I think this movie, it's weird because it's only 94 minutes, right? But it, it almost tries to do yeah. too much um, in its 94 minutes. I think that it tries to take on so many different topics uh, and, like, issues with being an eighth grader. I think that it, it does... It does everything it does. It does really well, but I'm not sure it does enough with every with every single topic. Like I really wanted it to engage even more with anxiety. I wanted it to engage even more with consent because you know we talked about the scene in the back of the car, but there's also another scene where Aiden, who's her crush, kind of from the first uh-huh. half of the film, um, before he realize she realizes he's a total you know douchebag. Yeah. Um. At, like basically just asks her like, oh hey, do you give blowjobs? Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. Is like a really memorable line from the movie for me. And so, it, and then obviously you also have everything going on with the father uh, and his relationship with her and how he's kind of fumbling through that and, and not really succeeding that that much. And 
absolutely the payoff is huge towards the end of this film. I think that, you know, one of my favorite scenes of the year is that fire pit scene. Uh, it's a really moving moment, and it's, a, and it's a scene in almost every single coming-of-age film, but not every one of them does it very well. Earns it. <laughs> not, not only does it not often earn it, but it often doesn't do the scene very well. Yeah. And this one does it. And, you know, I, I, I think that this movie maybe goes on a little bit too long right before the end, but I do really like the final scene where she goes and has dinner with Gabe. Yeah, I, that was hilarious. Yeah, the Rick and Morty talk. Nice. I, you know, I, I would just say I think the fact that this movie is set over the final week of Kayla's time in, in middle school really limits perhaps how far it can go with some of these themes that you're talking about. I sure. think, you know, the fact that it's a week. Not ev- not everything is going to happen in the course of one week. <laughs> eighth grade, Scott. Everything happened in the last week of eighth grade. It wasn't. It is an eventful week, though. But I mean, I, I adored this movie, and I hope that it's a great film. I gave I gave it an eight point eight, guys. Give me give me a break. <laughs> okay, we will. Yeah, um, I will. Uh, go ahead. I, I got my biggest laugh out of it, the final like dinner scene that she. Uh, had it's so Just awkward the, and the funny. The care yeah. that he took to like. He's like, I need to impress this girl. All what the am sauces. I do? Yeah. I need to lay out these sauces, and I, <laughs> I got I, the barbecue sauce and the ketchup. I I looked at my wife, who I knew her back in eighth grade, yeah. and I was like, "This is me. <laughs> this is real." And is I don't know. I just, She's like, "I'm Elsie Fisher." <laughs> and she, I mean, in, in a way, yeah, she was. Yeah. I mean, she, my my wife, um, is does struggle with social anxiety, and I mean, it, it's something that she has a hard time with, and I'm very proud of how she's overcome it now. But I well, mean, I'm gonna get all emotional. Uh, do it, Scott. But. Um, yeah, it wasn't a very emotional movie for us, yeah. both, but fantastic. A very Gucci movie. Very Gucci yeah. movie. And, you know, Bo Burnham, 28 years old. Uh, how inadequate do I feel? It, I know. His, his, his future is, is endless. Uh, okay. Uh, with that, we finally reached the moment, Scott. The I actual think, best movie of the yeah, year. We've <laughs> so, had a so lot of... I can leave? Or, yeah. yeah. You <laughs> we've, had some, we've had some disagreements this year, you know. We haven't always seen eye to eye on every single movie. Although recently, we've really been given a lot of the same scores. Yeah, we have. Um, we haven't always seen eye to eye on every single movie, but I think it really speaks to the quality of our choice that when it all came down to it, yeah, maybe I flip-flopped a little bit, but ultimately I feel very, I I wouldn't want to put another movie at number one ultimately, and I think you probably feel the same way because our experience of watching this movie, um, we've both seen it twice. Yeah. It's something that I, I won't forget. And, uh, even watching it a second time just reinforced for me that this is, this is the movie of the year. Um, and that is. Searching by Anish Shiganti. A um, movie that none of you have seen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think, broadly, before I talk about the movie specifically, I think this movie gets at what I think is... You've seen throughout the discussion that we've had on this episode, right? Which is that this is an amazing year for a genre film. And I think the Oscars almost tried to ruin it by having their really condescending best popular film category. But ultimately, they, they decided to withdraw it very smartly. But... This is a year where we've really seen that genre films can go toe-to-toe with traditional Oscar fare. You know, movies like The Favorite and Roma that we've talked about. And we've seen that, you know, quality-wise, these movies can accomplish everything that these Oscar Beatty movies do accomplish. Um, but the problem is they're just still not getting the recognition that they deserve, right? Searching is an incredibly well-reviewed movie, probably in the 90s on Rotten Tomatoes. A lot of people loved it, but you're not going to see it on a lot of people's lists. And certainly, I mean... I think that some people probably just don't feel that it's one of the top 10 best movies of the year. I I mean, sure, that's perfectly valid. But I think that certainly you'd have to say that a factor 
holding people back maybe from putting this in their list is the fact that this is a genre film. I mean, this is a, this is a thriller. Um, there, it doesn't make any qualms about the fact that it's a thriller. But when you really watch this movie, it again, like I was saying, it accomplishes everything that you want a movie to accomplish regardless of, of what genre it's in. Um, and I hope that in time, people will put aside the stigma associated with the fact that, oh, something is a genre film. It's supposed to appeal to a mass audience. Uh, and just see what a what an amazing thing that Anish Shiganti has done here um, from beginning to end, right? So from the very beginning. One of the best opening scenes. Amazing, incredible opening scene where... Uh, the, I'm, look, I'm looking at it on A computer yeah. screen. You All you see is a computer exactly. screen. Exactly. And it, this is what we talk about when I, when I get so mad about movies going for, on for so long because they're not efficient. They waste minutes on screen, you know, telling all this exposition. This movie gets it so right. In seven minutes, probably seven minutes, you know everything you need to know about where these characters are. And you, not a single line of dialogue. Right. Not a single line of dialogue. All you see is this computer screen. You trace literally... 17 years in the lives of this family. Uh, However old Margo is. Right. Uh, John Cho's um, David Kim, his late wife Pam, and Margo, uh, his daughter. And in seven minutes, you, you're you ready to go. And I mean, that was the thing which amazed me. First of all, it's such an emotionally powerful scene, the way that they use technology and the evolution of technology over these years to like emotionally hook you. And, and you know, convey things without spelling them out, right? Like you have the fact that Pam gets cancer. First, we see the calendar update treatment coming up. Then the update gets moved a couple weeks later, and then it gets deleted. And the movie doesn't have to tell you what happened. You know what happened. Um, it's such efficient storytelling. And, you know, I was so blown away by the first seven minutes of this movie when I went in. Because, I, you know, I expected to like the movie. I expected, oh, you know, this is going to be an effective thriller. Um but I wasn't expecting to be emotionally involved like I was from the very beginning. And when I get you get to the end of that scene, I was like, "All right, I'm ready to go now. Like this is this is a movie." And then we we jump right into the plot with John Cho trying to find Margot, trying to find his daughter has gone missing. Of course, the whole thing told only on screens, a brilliantly inventive way of telling the story um, that I think the the filmmaker that I, I think Shiganti you know does it brilliantly throughout, and I think he expands beyond the computer screen when he needs to. He doesn't feel like he is cabined only to that computer screen, which I think is smart. Maybe something like Unfriended probably could have done that a little bit better. Hardcore Henry. <laughs> yes, maybe Hardcore Henry. Yeah, well, he, uses, he uses phone screens every once in a while. Right, yeah, or we see news footage. You know, it's not all the, you know, the desktop of John Cho, but the movie sinks its talons in so early on in terms of the plot and it's throwing all these clues at you that you probably don't really know are clues and you know it does that great thing where ultimately when you you get the reveal about everything that's been going on you say to yourself man how come i didn't see this before yeah and it, i think that's the hallmark of a great thriller mm. when all the clues have been there but because of the way the movie spins its web because of the way it sinks its its teeth in you never see it coming um and you know, we have some amazing, like, we talked about with The Quiet Place, some, like, moments of great theatrical, like, being in the theater that adds to the experience of watching this movie. I think you get that in Searching as well, you know. The reveal with the, the a certain image of someone. I'm not going to spoil anything because I still want people to see this movie. It's I think so a lot good. of people have it. But you, audible gas. Yes, the exactly. An image Both of someone comes up at this movie uh, at a certain point in the movie. You'll know when you see it. And... Same for me. Audible gasps in the theater. Uh, 
And that's, I mean, what more can you ask from a movie like this? Uh, but, you know, to leave you with your jaw on the floor, you know, I was telling Scott that I watched this movie with my family the other night, and they don't always go for my recommendations when it comes to movies. I mean, yeah, oftentimes... Yeah, elitist art house movie. Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, but oftentimes, you know, my dad will fall asleep. My brother will be on his phone the whole time. Neither of those things happened during this movie. They were all, my mom, dad, and brother were all completely locked in. They were all like talking through the movie, you know, trying to figure it out. Uh, and I just loved seeing that, you know, them go through the experience of watching this movie for the first time. And I think most importantly, right, we get to the resolution of the conflict in the movie. We get to, you know, the resolution of this, this search for Margot. And the movie doesn't end there, which I think is exactly right. And I was saying, you know, it get, when it gets to this moment in the movie where the conflict has been resolved, I'm saying to myself, okay, now bring it home. Like, come on. Yeah, I'm, I've been with you so hard the Leave whole time. Leave me with something. I know. Bring it home. And they bring it home. And, and they it, do. It, it, leaves, it leaves a two-foot attack on you. Absolutely. At the end. <laughs> <laughs> it, the, this text message conversation that happens between Margot uh, and David at the end, there's, you know, this great moment maybe my favorite moment of the year when you see the three dots, right? And you know oh, what, so you know good. the message that David is about to type. And I just like, I remember when you seeing the three dots come up and I just sat there and I just like sighed because I was so relieved, right? That the movie brought it home exactly how I wanted it to. And then, you know, the text message comes through, won't say what it is because I don't want to spoil it. But man, this movie hits so many high notes. I mean, Everything it tries works. John Cho's performance, incredible in the leading role. In A Just World, he would be in the Oscar conversation. In A Just World, this movie would be up for a bunch of Oscars, including editing. I mean, the editing of this movie is amazing, the way that they... I, I literally don't know how this movie... Unless... Unless... Animation. Who is it? Who is it that's the like distributor on this? So, unless Screen, screen Gems, unless, right? yeah. And so unless Sony is like so all-in on Spider-Verse, yeah. they're like not willing to like push searching i like literally don't know how this movie can't get nominated for yeah. and it's not going to like i don't know how this movie can't get nominated for editing yeah and i mean yeah I, it's it would be mind-boggling but you know ultimately the reason i choose this as the best movie of the year in addition to what all i've said is that when i walked out of this movie it was more so than any movie this year i had that feeling of just complete and total satisfaction of what i had just seen like Man, this is a movie which, from the first minute to the very last minute, delivers exactly what you wanted. Uh, it's emotionally satisfying. It's suspenseful. It's incredibly well done and inventive. It's exactly what you want in a movie for best picture, and it's the best movie of the year. I can't argue with it any further. You heard it here, folks. I don't even know if I can add anything else. Scott has said literally everything. I'm about sorry. The I have movie. a lot of thoughts. <laughs> It's a great opening scene, it's a great ending scene, and everything in the middle is also great. <laughs> um, I, I don't know what else to say. This is, this is the best movie of 2018. I saw it first in theaters. When I saw it a second time, I thought like the shine was going to wear off, thought the magic was going to be gone. I was seeing it with... And granted, I was seeing it with people who hadn't seen it before. So there was an element of my movie-watching experience that was similar to yours, Scott, that was uh, that I was like, oh, like I want to see how they respond yeah. to certain parts of the movie. But even then, like just look, watching the movie again... Even though I know all all of the kind of the spoilers, all of the plot twists, where everything goes, it's still such it's a it's it's just a satisfying. It's great seeing time. how the sausage gets made too, right? You see yeah. all the things you missed the first time, and you're like, man, this movie is great. Like the way that it it sets everything up, it's all right there. You just you're so sucked in that you miss it all. Yeah, and I, it's a it's a gimmick. So the whole idea that the movie is is shot entirely through the lens of a, a you know a computer camera, an iPhone camera, things like that. Um, it, it's a gimmick that will probably never work 
again. Not it, work it, as well. It can't. It can't yeah. be done this well again, just yeah. because the fact that it's been done before. <laughs> they killed it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they killed it in um, one movie. Yeah, but. Wow, it is a gimmick that this movie crushes. Um, I compare it to, in many ways to my number two film, Spider-Verse, where, you know, maybe, maybe it's the case that that animation style will never work again yeah. for another movie, but it's a gimmick that At works we got really freaking well yeah. for Spider-Verse, and it's a gimmick that works really freaking well for Searching. It's my best movie. <coughs> uh, when I sat down to make my list, I took a few moments to debate it, and then I was like, Searching's it. It's, it. it's Searching. Yeah, yeah Absolutely. All right, well, there you have it. Um, yeah. Wow, we, we did it. Yeah, Scott. we did our top ten list. One year down. One year down, uh, almost almost to the date uh, when, when the podcast was conceived yeah. in, in your house, not mine, yes. um, doing, doing a little episode. But even better that we got to have uh, you know, Clint and then Eli kind of in recording and spirit here with us, <laughs> with us today. Um, kind of last note as we wrap things up here. Uh, when, what's one thing, Clint, that you're looking forward to in Trinity in terms of, of movie world? It doesn't have to be a new release. Be, oh, man. You know, whatever, whatever you want it to be. I, even though I am skeptical about this movie, um, because it's kind of riding the coattails of its predecessor, I'm looking forward to Us by Jordan Peele. Mm, yeah, we were talking about the trailer earlier. It is a freaky trailer. It really is. Yeah, like, we were talking about how it leans way more into the horror. Yeah. Genre. I mean, we think. We, right, we we'll think, see when we, we see think. the movie. But. I mean, I have theories from the trailer already, but Jordan Peele is a master storyteller. Yeah, he is so so good. Like I I I I used to work at the airport, you know, background of myself, and I was there till like three or four in the morning, and so I would read screenplays to keep myself up, mm-hmm. and I would I read the entire Get Out screenplay. Interesting. Wow. And it is so like you can tell like every there's so much care into yeah. every punctuation comma word that was used in how he describes how he wants the scenes to move and so i'm excited because i can tell how much care jordan peele is putting into his movies and that's what excites me i told this on the podcast uh, our last episode uh, but there i saw on twitter and i since got this that there's this tweet about how uh, people are there. This theory, it's not really a theory; it's a joke. But I assume. But people are like, "Oh, is Jordan, is Jordan Peele secretly uh, sending us a message through his movie titles? Like his first one is Get Out, the second one's Us. U- so yeah. Get Out US. Get Out US. Uh, like, no, he's not doing that. Yeah, and then a great a great response to that tweet was one that said, "If his next movie title is Real Talk, I'm packing my bags and leaving immediately." <laughs> Uh, yeah, no. Us will be great. It will be really interesting to see. Yeah, that's definitely up there for me. For me, another movie that I'm looking forward to in 2019, and, you know, there are a lot of, uh, what? Oh, I thought you were going to say that your most anticipated movie of 2018. Yeah, well, that too. It still hasn't come out yet. But, um, no Cracker in the Four Realms. Yeah, that was it. No. Um, that was where Scott drew a line in the sand. He was he was going to quit the podcast if we were doing <laughs> Cracker in the Probably movie. so, honestly. But... You know, there's a lot of big budget movies, obviously, looking forward to. Mm-hmm. Endgame, Star Wars Episode Nine. Yeah, You'd have to put those up there. But for, for a movie which maybe a lot of pe- more people don't know about that's coming out, um, but that I'm, you know, equally excited for, uh, Greta Gerwig is doing a new mm-hmm. version of Little Women that's coming oh, out yeah. on Christmas Day, it's I believe, next year. Right. And the Merch sisters are Saoirse Ronan, Florence Pugh, and Emma Watson. And then Timothy Chalamet. Timothy Chalamet, Meryl Streep, Frank Bob Maternal Odenkirk. As a, as human in Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. But yeah, I think this is going to be, you know, obviously Greta Gerwig's follow-up to Lady Bird. I think the cast is amazing. I'm going to be very disappointed if this movie doesn't follow through. Um, It's got a a great work of literature to to work with as well. So definitely looking forward to Little Women. Oh, is that a novel? 
Oh yeah, yeah. have you never heard of it? Also, uh, Knives have you Out. Heard of the Bible? Knives Out is going to be great too. Newest Ryan Johnson movie. Yeah. Ooh. Not Star Wars, unless it, unless it's plot twist. It's actually one of the Star Wars. Uh, yeah, that would movies. be a plot twist. Um, it's the first movie in his new trilogy. <laughs> Knives Out. Uh, yeah, no, that all all fair. I think for me, it's got to be. It, it's a coin flip between Endgame and Episode Nine for me. Right. Things most most excited about yeah. because. Both of them are the conclusions of huge things. Obviously, both of them are, are ultimately not going to be the final movies in their franchises, mm-hmm. right? They might be the final movies in those particular stories. Um, but everything has led to both of these things, literally. Everything has led up to Endgame. Everything has led up to Star Wars Episode Nine. Uh, J.J. Abrams back on the helm for Episode Nine will be really interesting to see if he just copies Episode Six. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, but I mean, I mean, we're all really... shots fired at my favorite Star Wars movie yeah. of all time. Here, I'm really just blessed it's not Colin Trevorrow yes, directing episode nine. So. Um, but the Russo brothers, whatever they come up with for Endgame, is going to be something special, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm looking forward to those as well. Awesome. All right, first and foremost, our esteemed guest, Clint. Where can listeners find you on Twitter? Yeah, uh, the listeners can follow me personally on Twitter at uh, Clint J H Page. Uh, they can also follow uh, my co-host Elisha at Eli Shap Smith or Elisha P. Smith, however you want to play it. And uh, if you want to tune in to our podcast, I'd really appreciate it. You, you should do so. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, I mean this entirely sincerely. I appreciate the the warm words that y'all send our podcast. Yeah. Um, but you can uh, look us up at purely nostalgia on Twitter or purely nostalgia pod on uh, Instagram, and you can also follow Eli and I both on Letterboxd. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, purely nostalgia. I don't know if you guys have heard it on the podcast yet, but uh, yeah, their podcast is called Purely Nostalgia. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks to Clint, and and thanks again to Elisha for recording those ahead of time. We appreciate you going to the effort to participate, even though you couldn't be yeah. here. Expect to see him in the comments section. Yeah. <laughs> we uh, we uh, are excited. We we look forward to having both of y'all back for next year's you know, roundtable episode, Never both alive. in studio. Pencil it in. Yeah. Pencil it in. Yeah. If we are alive. Also, yeah. Scott, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, I'm at Scarvey Dent, uh, and you can also find me on all social media there, and and Letterbox as well. Please follow me. The most me important there. social media that yes. has to be said now. That really we're all has on it's, it. yeah. it's taken over. Yeah. It's replaced Facebook on my uh, bottom bottom app bar. <laughs> there you go. Uh, anyway, yeah, I can also be found over on Twitter at shelton2013. You can also find our podcast on Twitter. That's some like it's got, and we'd love it if you followed us over there at, at @mediaplugpods. We'd love it even more if you checked out our podcast Patreon page. There are a bunch of different reward tiers over there, depending on how much you're willing to pledge to the podcast. We'd appreciate it so much, even if you just contributed at the $1 level, but you should go over to www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods to check that out for yourself. Pick the tier that's right for you, and uh, just support us if you can. All right, if you choose not to support us over on Patreon, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. We're switching over to Podbean mm. as our hosting service for the new year, and so we'd appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us at either place there, as well as subscribe shared all that jazz so we can continue to reach a broader audience. All right, I've said more than enough. I've talked a lot. Everyone else here is probably all voices a little tired from talking so much, but (laughs) it's been a good time. We really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about our favorite movies of 2018. As I alluded to at the beginning of the podcast, this is only part one of our 2018 in review podcasts. There will be more Roundup to come, a Schmodown dedicated review episode, a comic book movies episode, and then the culmination will be our year-end awards episode uh, that will wrap up our 2018 coverage as we already are off covering 2019 um, starting in just a few weeks. So 
Uh, those will be releasing over the next month or two, interspersed with our usual episodes. Next time you hear our voices will likely be next weekend when we talk about two more still 2018 releases, Mary in, in Vice and Mary Queen of Scots. We'll be wrapping mm. those up. And we hope you'll join us again then. But until next time, we hope you have a wonderful day. A happy New Year. For Clint and Eli from the Purely Nostalgia podcast, as well as Scott Harvey over here at Some Like It Scott, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody. Thanks so much, guys. Happy New Year.